Uh, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the September 10th Finance Committee meeting. And call the meeting to order. Apparently, we have some public uh, comment, but it's under a specific item, item C. Um, is that true, Rana? There's. For item C, nothing for general um, or non-agenda items, I mean. And if I can call roll now, it'd be great. Please. Excellent. Uh, Trustee Avalada. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Shequin. Here. Trustee DeVries. Here. Trustee Peterson. Here. We have a quorum. Thank you. Great. Um, I believe there's a amendment to the meeting meeting minutes from Kim. Um, so I think there was a little, uh, misunderstanding or I didn't finish my sentence, but, uh, I stated that if we took out the, um, uh, prior year recruitments of the 137 million, um, I said that our NNB would be in excess of 167, uh, the true number is closer to 175. And then I started to talk about the fact that we weren't at budget for 30. Uh, we didn't hit our target for 30 million. And then I stopped talking. So um, the amendment would be that everybody recognizes that without the recoupments, we wouldn't have an NNB balance of 30 million. We would have the NNB balance of about um, 175. Okay. So with those changes, is, do I hear a motion for the minutes? So moved. Second. Second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Sounds like all in favor. Let's move to information items. Item uh, B1, back to our CFO. Okay, so let's pull up the presentation here. This is the June presentation. Everybody can see it? Yes. Okay. Yes. 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 Yeah, I just looked into the slide to the right. I was like, oh my God, I got to get a periscope here or something. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of numbers, particularly on this volume highlight slide. Lots of numbers. <laughs> Um, but what I want to point out here is that our acute days and our acute discharges are still um, quite a bit below budget in the 10% range. That's not as bad as we've been, so we are recovering somewhat as far as census goes uh, during the pandemic. Um, but if you look at the mix of services, there's definitely some areas where we're seeing a lot less activity. That would be in the ED. Um, and also in surgeries there, particularly the outpatient down 66%. Um, deliveries have kind of been gone down all year, so it's, I, I'm not going to call that one out. And the other areas in the skilled nursing, if you look at discharges, we're not seeing as many patients as we were because of the whole throughput issue and quarantine patients. Um, a positive light on the clinic visits. Um, if you combine the, the actual in-person and the telehealth, we're ahead of budget. And I know we wanted to see telehealth and inpatient visits by the type of visit it was, 
Mm -hmm. um, we're struggling to get that out of the system. When we uh, stood up telehealth, um, we didn't, we didn't, we have to create all the reporting mechanisms and we just have been struggling. So um, we're going to need another month before I can give you some accurate data. Uh, this is based on registration. So that's what we as a leadership team decided to present to the board. Okay, thank you. Uh, this is also June. So this is our year end numbers. Uh, so it's also, you know, kind of worthwhile to note that for the year we, we pretty much only hit a couple of things, CMI, which is good. That's a good indication that uh, we're getting better documentation in EPIC. We want our CMI to be higher. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's not a direct correlation, but typically with better documentation, your CMI does go up. And um, inpatient surgeries, although, you know, since COVID they've been down overall for the year, they were up, so that was a good sign. And um, I think that's probably that's probably um, the year in a nutshell there. Okay. Next slide is our financial performance. I uh, just want to remind everybody, these are preliminary. Um, what AHS has done in prior years is um, a certain set of adjustments get held and they get done with the audit. And so this is the prelim budget where not everything has been pushed through, but, and I do expect there will be more entries. So I know this is not uh, final, uh, but I do think it's a good indication and worth and worthy of uh, going through here for a few minutes. So um, in June, our EBITDA was favorable 13.6 million. Our net income um, was 31.1 million. Uh, which was unfavorable, 2.1 million, um, and um, EBITDA at the 13,631 for the month was unfavorable, 23.3 million. And I'll get into the details of that um, year to date. We actually finished the year um, better than budget, so we are 11.8 million better in net income and 16.8 million better in EBITDA. So this is the revenue slide. Um, the top part there is our net patient service revenue. Um, you can see in the month of June, consistent with our stats, our gross revenue is down 10.1% or 28.7 million. If you look at where it's coming from, it's mostly outpatient in the month of June. Uh, our inpatient census, you know, with some, you know, COVID patients has picked up. Um, professional revenue is still down 8.7, even though our visits combined telehealth and in-person were higher than budget. And I want to point out that uh, telehealth charges are not as high as in-person charges. So uh, our CDM is set differently for based somewhat on our costs. So um, that's why you see the charges um, being lower in the uh, professional service revenue. So at 11.8% collection rate, that's very low for us. And there were a couple of things that happened. Um, the biggest item was a remittance recoupment notice came in in the March timeframe. And that was right when we were um, archiving Meditech. And 
for reasons I can't explain to you that we were dark for a month so we couldn't have done anything with that recoupment but then after we went back live we were working only on the archive we did not post that remittance um, the good news is that our our internal controls are in place and we caught it we saw that there was a problem we weren't balancing in cash and we looked into it figured it out and were able to get the uh, correction in June, but it does uh, definitely have a huge impact on that collection percentage. In addition to that, um, as uh, most of you know, we've, uh, we've had a rocky go of uh, getting up and running and stable on Epic. We uh, took us a long time to get all of our claims out the door. And then once we got them out the door, we had a high denial rate so what that is doing is it's causing a delay in our contractual models. So I would expect over the next several months that our actual ratio will pick up because our cash has picked up. And I'll show you that here in a minute. On the uh, government program side, everything is kind of netting out there, but there's a whole lot of activity. And so I went ahead and did another slide for that because there's just no way I could have put all that information into this one slide. So uh, um, here is the uh, slide just based on the supplementals uh, and other revenue highlights. So for the Medi-Cal waiver, we had another um, adjustment of 1.2 million for year end in June. Um, for the year, it was a total of 35.9 million. So that's a big uh, variance from budget. In regard to Measure A, we did another reduction of revenue of 3.9 million in June. That was based on our May report. Things have actually been picking up for Measure A. I don't know if they'll stay higher. Uh, so we think we'll have a year-end adjustment to where we'll be back pretty much on budget for the year of the 117.7 million. And uh, many of you may recall that our budget in some ways was conservative because we were outpacing that pre-COVID. Um, other supplemental revenues, um, there's a lot of netting going on and I did a big huge slide. I don't know if you want me to go through all of this, but the big items were the GME um, being approved. That was 19.1 uh, million additional money that we had not expected to get. There was the behavioral health true up. The net amount was 8.7 that we hadn't budgeted during the year. That was another big pickup for us. And then the COVID funding was 17 million um, as of year end, at least as of the as of this report. So any questions? I can go through more of it, but those are the really big items that um, helped us this year. Okay. On the expense side, um, our operating expenses were 73.6 million for the month of June, and that was favorable, 15 million. Um, what's driving that is a, is a, a few different things. Um, purchase services has been, well, let's start with labor costs. That's going to be my next slide. That's the most favorable. The rest of the expenses are pretty much unfavorable, with the expect, exception of contract physician contract services, as we've been hiring physicians, um, the expense is going up into labor costs. 
Um, but for purchase services, we've been over, you know, pretty much all year and it's coming from outside medical services and the legacy AR vendors. Um, they are paid based on what they collect, uh, but we had not budgeted those fees. In regard to materials and supplies, um, we are over this month, um, mostly for pharmaceuticals. Uh, and I wasn't able to confirm that that was COVID related. Um, I'm still working on that. Cleaning supplies were high, obviously, lab reagents high, and uh, we had an inventory adjustment. Uh, facilities were unfavorable. Uh, and that's net of the elimination of the Creekside lease and the Eastmont abatement. Um, it's really utilities and repair costs. We've had a lot of um, overages in both those areas. Depreciation, we just missed it in the budget. We estimated low, it was evenly spread, so it's been off all year. Um, the good news on that, and I want to remind everybody is we did complete both budgets or both projects on budget. So that's the really the important thing versus the timing of the depreciation expense. And in general, the administrators have been positive all year until this month. And it's just a timing difference from the um, subsidy to the foundation. So here's the labor slide. Um, we are very favorable, 20.2 uh, million, and that's really driven by the retirement. Um, we got the ACERA um, actuarial report, and there was a $23.6 million improvement, and that's being driven by investment returns based on the report we got June 4th, which is based on the um, rates for calendar year 19. So 18 was unfavorable, 19 was favorable, and it did this, this big um, adjustment for us, which reduces our expense, both the current expense and the um, non-cash portion, uh, the GASB 68 and GASB 75 requirement that uh, look at the life of the uh, liability to retirement. In regard to the wages, um, most of the year, our wage variance has been positive and it's been offsite, offset by registry, but it's been pretty close. But now in the, uh, in the current month, that's not the case because our salary variance is not as positive as it used to be. And that's because of the leave of absences for COVID. Um, we, um, we are down from where we were in May. Um, Let's see if I put the total in here. Yeah, there, there were 308. So we had 308 FTEs on leave, which was 132 less than May. So much fewer, but it did take away our positive variance and we're still paying for registry to cover a lot of our positions for people that are out on leave. Um, here is the Kim. This is Taft. A quick question on labor. Yeah. Um, uh, Dista, can you give me the math of where our estimates are with regard to what the, our labor costs have been related to the 12-week leave uh, under the uh, under the first coronavirus response act? You know, well, how much have we, how, has our organization spent on that when considering backfill and the like? 
I have that here in my notes. If you want, I can, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, see if I can pull it up here in a few minutes. Sure. I don't know, remember what it is. It's completely eating up our, uh, our uh, positive salary va uh, variance that we've had. And I have a slide on that too, where we show the FTEs, but not the dollars. Okay. But I, I do have it here somewhere. Excellent. So here is the uh, June balance sheet metrics and the days in AR here have uh, gone up a bit. This is the June report. I am gonna give you an update on this and uh, we are looking positive across the bar board everywhere in revenue cycle. So I'm very pleased with that. So I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time here. Um, the one thing I will say is that um, the net revenue has been impacted more because of the adjustments that we made. So uh, when you look from month to month, our days in AP are down because we've had cash, we've had room under our line of credit. And we added the do to do from to the county um, so that we could track the capital investment and the um, capital reimbursement funds. I think I have a slide coming up on that too. Here's the cash collections. Um, a little disappointing in June at the 38.4 level when we've been running in the 40 million range. Um, but I, before anybody gets too, uh, too excited about that, you have to recall that COVID started in March and our days in AR, uh, based on this slide here, are about 80, well, net AR is 82 days. Yeah. So you would expect that we would see that drop. In fact, our drop in charges was about 30% in the March, April timeframe. And now we're at about 10%. So um, we would expect our cash to start to go down um, in this timeframe, but it has not actually. And I'll be able to show you that here soon. Also, uh, good news is that our uh, net, our cash to net revenue is above 100 percent, 6.7 percent we're ending the year at. And that is actually a little higher than I would want to see it. At 101.7, that's great. 106 is a little high, higher than it should be. So that makes me think that our um, contractual model is running behind because of all of the issues with stabilizing EPIC. And it's, ba it's based on looking back at paid accounts so as we get more paid and our samples gets bigger, I think our net revenue or our contractual percentage will um, um, improve. And so, but this is a great indication. And I, we, I don't know if you remember when I first started, I had that graph where we, um, we looked at our net revenue that we reported in our cash received and so we were always uh, doing a trend line on both to see if they're always matching up. I don't know if anybody remembers that. I'll put that back in the presentation for this next year. I just thought for, um, for this uh, presentation that we would already be crunched for time. Mm -hmm. So here's the uh, supplemental programs. And I just, again, need to remind everybody that this is, a, this is what's on our balance sheet today and that we've got a lot of um, recoupments due. You can see the 
Medi-Cal cost report, the 3,300. You can see the old waiver, the 67,152. You can see the FHQ on here. Um, and you can also see the physician spa, although it's not in 21, we're expecting to have to pay that in 22. Um, but those uh, liabilities are there, but we need the current accounts receivable to pay for operations. We can't just take the receivable and pay the liabilities. And that's the June report. Great, any questions? I did, I did have one question. Uh, this is Joe. On the, oh, oh, could you go back to that other slide? <laughs> oh, sorry, I was pulling up the other presentation. Okay, sorry about that. And I'm sorry, you may have said it in elsewhere in the report when I read it, but I was curious about that, um, that, that uh, well, I need to look at it, that supplemental slide. This one, okay. Yeah, um, there was a big number that the county got and, oh, it's not on this slide. Yeah, this is, um, so you're talking about the cash flow slide where we've got the, or are you talking about the COVID money? The COVID money. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I um, and maybe that's in your July report. Uh, there was that big, there was that big CARES Act fund that the county received a large chunk. We didn't know what we were going to get. I was just wondering if there any progress had been made on that. I didn't, I don't recall seeing anything on that in the report. Yes, no, we have not um, um, been able to successfully engage with them to do an MOU for uh, any additional COVID related work or funding. Okay, are, are we trying? <laughs> um, I know that uh, Tangerine was working on um, uh, an MOU to do testing. I can I can speak to it. And, okay, go ahead. That's fine. Uh, yeah, uh, Trustee DeVries, we uh, the the opportunities that the county has placed out for um, um, kind of uh, areas where people could, uh, well, at least we could participate in some of the funding support. I think a big portion of the dollars, as I understand it, have been spent for things like uh, the hotels. I think that's a significant part of the uh, investment that they've used for new expenses for those dollars. But in terms of care delivery or care support related to the pandemic or tangential to it, it's been uh, an RFP for testing and then an RFP for um, um, case investigation, contact tracing. Uh, and uh, the testing one, we have uh, uh, been working with the county for a number of weeks here now, uh, going into months, uh, trying to uh, secure a contract for us to expand our testing uh, to the community. Uh, we had we had three different things we filed on. It was community testing. It was uh, sort of the lab element of testing, expanding to that, as well as skilled nursing facility. We took the lab part out. The county uh, didn't see an ability to kind of help us with securing uh, testing equipment to be able to expand uh, that part. And so we had the other two up until last Friday. And there's been a lot of shifts in the SNF uh, testing environment or in uh, expectations based off of CMS requirements and other changes. So we pulled that out as well because that was slowing or 
it was suggested that, that would slow down some of the uh, negotiations that we were trying to uh, proceed with them on. So now we're just looking at the community testing part, and we uh, unfortunately we're still not there yet. So uh, because of all the uh, machinations with this part, we've elected not to pursue uh, any contact tracing case investigation work with them. Um, uh, and then uh, beyond that, I think um, one of the other things we are trying to uh, explore that's not in an RFP context is whether there would be any appetite or interest in the county supporting uh, some, our ability to use uh, uh, Building H of Fairmont, which used to be the acute rehab before we moved to San Leandro, uh, to now uh, stand that up for uh, additional SNF capacity that would support predominantly our isolation ability because some of the SNF requirements now are that patients need to be uh, patients who are positive need to be able to be successfully isolated uh, from the rest of your congregate population for about 14 days. And we have limited capacity in our other SNFs for private uh, rooms to do that. So we're kind of using it as a front door to uh, uh, process people through for a 14-day period uh, uh, before they didn't transfer it to other sites. So to kind of be that kind of thing, both for our own SNFs as well as uh, community SNFs. So there's some startup costs associated with that, that if we haven't already, we're hoping to reach out to the county and see if they'd be interested in supporting uh, because those dollars, the 291 million there, uh, our understanding is that those dollars have to be spent by December 31st. Uh, so not sure how much of it they've already spent, uh, but uh, hoping to be able to find some way that we could uh, participate in that. And we haven't as of yet. Thank you for that. And um yeah, I think I saw that in uh, Luis's report. Is it the H building or the F building? H building, uh, yes. H building, yeah. I think that's a great idea, by the way. And um, yeah, it's $291 million is a lot of money, and you do have to spend it all by December. I know the city's faced with a similar challenge in, in spending CARES Act money fast. Um, so hopefully we can come up with some other creative ways they could help, but we could help them spend that money. Agreed. And I think this is the, the uh, schedule you were talking about, Trustee DeVries. Yes, it was. Thank you. Yeah. All right. And didn't mean to get you off course. <laughs> no, that's okay. This is the next slide on the um, for, uh, for July. Um, so it's in regards to updates to this, um, there's not a lot here that I didn't report on um, last month. Um, I think we talked about the eight million point uh, three five. We've received that on July twentieth. Um, that was part of what we're calling CARES Act ten for high impact hospitals. It's nice to see because the first time around we didn't qualify. And on uh, the next sheet, so oh, I guess there's also the SNF. We did get the the uh, fixed distribution of ten thousand um, plus uh, one thousand four fifty per bed, so that was nice four hundred and forty um, five hundred on August twenty seventh, yeah. and um, we expect to receive um, five million from the CARES Act two here, the general distribution, which is equal to two percent of the net revenue. That one we're pretty confident with. That's why we went ahead and put this on here, but we haven't received it yet. And then, oops, I wasn't in the presentation. And then 
here, slideshow. There we go. And then on this uh, document, probably the only thing that's changed is uh, down there for Medi-Cal plans. Um, the Alliance did award us a million eighty-five, and then another million five in those are the May and June cycles. We've recorded one of those in our books, and the other one is going to be an audit entry. We just didn't get it in um, in time. Then the last one there is also new. Um, we received on September third uh, another seventy-seven thousand. Uh, from the CHA fund. So, you know, we've been getting some good support. Uh, we still are are needing more and wanting more. Um, but that's, uh, I don't know if Devecchio, if you want to add any more. Um, no, well, uh, I probably good. I'm actually sending an email to you and Shulin and, and Tenderin right now. Uh, but, um, uh, the main other alternative source, and it'll come up in the budget discussion, so I'll just go ahead and say it now, that uh, we were really hoping to be able to get is uh, um, the bucket of dollars that were uh, um, uh, in the tranche of dollars that were for safety net uh, systems. Uh, and we, as well as a number of systems around the state and country, uh, didn't get um, uh, funding uh, that we were should have been eligible for based off of uh, the approach that HHS took to looking at our cost reports and the way in which there's so much variation in how cost reports are filed. Um, there was no unanimity for uh, the uh, unanimity uh, to the types of issues that people face based off of the methodology that they use. Uh, and so we've been appealing quite uh, uh, aggressively for reconsideration. We even filed an amended cost report that was approved because it was just a matter of taking costs that we had in the report and putting them elsewhere to kind of mirror their calculation uh, to demonstrate that our net revenue was uh, made us eligible for this funding. And so unfortunately, just over the past 36 hours, I'm having a bunch of exchanges where they're denying um, um, or refusing to, to look at our amended reports, uh, uh, but I'm not giving up, but it just doesn't it's a substantial amount of dollars that we think we would get. Um, uh, and so we're gonna keep trying, but it looks less and less likely that we'll be successful. So, uh, but we'll keep, we'll keep pressing. Thanks, Devecchio. Sure. Wish I had better news. Yeah, I know. Uh, they had said they weren't gonna go back, go back and, uh, and use the previous cost reports that they would uh, take a new stance, but no. Yeah. Hopefully, we'll get that. We'll get some additional funding. Um, here's the COVID expenses to date, and um, we're we're doing this kind of in two parts. If it is 100% COVID related, could not be disputed. We never would have spent it unless there was uh, the pandemic. It goes into a COVID cost set, and then there are other expenses that are. Um, embedded in our um, inventory distribution. So what we've been doing there is taking amounts over the run rate or amounts to departments who never used to get PPE and that are now getting PPE to calculate the other, the second section here. 
Um, and total expenditures to date are 13.5 million. So, you know, the, the cost of the COVID-19 is not as great as, um, as the lost revenue. Um, you can see there on the payroll related, there's a, there's a, a couple of uh, payroll items. There's the labor costs, which is in the top. That's the directly coded. That's for watching the donning of PP&E and for um, working in the, in the tents, giving shots versus the COVID related leaves are in the second section. So, so far as of 731, the cost has been nine, about 9.3 million. That was the number Joe was asking for earlier, right? Yeah, correct. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to look it up. I had it in the slide. <laughs> Prepared. Yeah. I think that was Taft asking for that. Yeah, it was. It was Trustee yeah. Bouquet. I'm sorry. So then we're. Uh, on I'm sorry. Happy I'm to sorry. be attributed to Trump. <laughs> Quick question though. So this is. I'm sorry. So is this money that we think? we can get reimbursed through under our cares act but or, or through fema or anything like that or is this just you're just showing us these are expenses i'm showing you that these are expenses but the reason why we set all this reporting up was so we could claim it so right. in, in in some of the funding sources they only wanted to provide uh help with expenses they weren't interested in helping us with lost revenue so we wanted to make sure we, you know, had this available, and then we have gotten, you know, some funding, um, and we we can't double dip. So I didn't have any other way to track it. So if I got funding for any of these items, I also put that funding in this cost center, so that I would know what the net amount is. So that's how we're tracking it. Um, we're gonna do a FEMA claim. Um, it's for 75% of costs. FEMA takes a very strict definition. So if, 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 for instance, I went and, you know, worked um, providing some sort of COVID support, they wouldn't allow me to claim that because uh, AHS is already paying my salary as an exempt employee, and they would say that's not a new cost. Mm -hmm. So you have to be really, really careful about, you know, what you claim with FEMA, and, and they typically will audit everybody. Um, we did take, have some training and um, we've got uh, someone in our grants team um, really drilling in and working with FEMA directly. So when it's time, we can do the claim. But FEMA is always after the fact, not during. So uh, doing a claim now um, for this amount of money probably isn't worth it. We probably, it would be better for us to wait until the disasters over unless you know something changed and it was huge huge amounts of money um so we weren't thinking of doing an interim um request Kim, thanks for the slide that helps to answer my question so one more time sometimes i'm remedial here 9.262 includes all costs that's our 12-week paid and the backfill for them not the backfill ah. not, yeah we they won't let us uh, do that so this is just for paid leaves of absences. Do we have an estimate on how much the backfill costs? So we get um, kind of an all number, drive off the parking lot number? I do not because um, I don't have a clear view of when a registry person is brought in for a COVID leave. 
I don't know if Tony's on the line, um, but in our we don't we aren't tracking a one to one. Uh, so if we if uh, nursing brings in registry, I don't know if it's to replace a COVID related person or if somebody's just um, you know not at work and we have a vacancy or something like that. Right, or or if it's some other type of leave that just happens to be contemporaneous. And the other thing, uh, Trustee McKenna, perhaps you know this, so forgive me. Uh, if there would um, the the uh, appropriate way to look at it wouldn't be the total of the backfield plus the uh, the leave because if the leave didn't occur, uh, the the expenses would be the, the 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 pay, which would effectively be the same as the 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 uh, the leave. So you basically have to subtract the. Uh, the difference between the backfill and the leave uh, to get the difference of what the additional cost, sort of the impact of the benefit is. I'm, I'm sorry, Dovecchio, walk me through that again one more time. I'm being remedial here. So no, 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 it's in, fine. Our, in, in our unit, we, we had uh, five of our six nurses take that 12-week leave. Right. And, and then we had to pay uh, SANS to cover the back part of that. Correct. So that that expense was attributed back to us. No, it it is, uh, and it's it's to the organization. What I'm saying is the aggregate impact of the of the benefit would be um, the the cost of the backfill minus the cost of the leave. Because if the leaves didn't occur, it wouldn't you still be have plus. To pay. It would be minus. Okay. Because if the leaves didn't occur, you'd still have to pay the salary of the people doing the work, which effectively you're now just paying as leave. Okay. And you wouldn't experience the cost of the backfill. Okay. I'm going to encourage us to yeah, back on. move on. Move on. Yeah. Yeah. And then just there is one, the other issue too is registry is can, can be more expensive, especially in the nursing areas and especially during this COVID event because everybody's needing people. So, it's uh, brought up uh, the cost quite a bit. So the fees are actually, they're charging a higher fee because of the... Uh, the supply and demand in action. Yeah. <laughs> it's capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so here's the, the volume highlights. And um, you can see that, that we're down 7.1% in patient days to budget and 13.1% in uh, discharges. So it's not net, it's not really changing much than when I showed you last month of, of 10%. Um, we are trying to build back our volumes. Um, I think in the, in the revenue cycle slide, I can show you how we compare to our peer group. Uh, I didn't put it in the finance presentation this time. Uh, again, I wanna point out the mix of services the ED is down, um, trauma um, is down, um, surgeries, particularly outpatient, are way down. And these are typically more profitable um, services. So uh, it does have a mixed uh, variance on our net patient revenue. The skilled nursing, Again, we're seeing you know fewer people. Uh, we already have throughput challenges, and then to see you know ten less um, discharges in the month than than planned uh, is is it impacts our ability to get folks out. So, and that impacts length of stay. On our clinic visits, um, 
good news there is we're up and again this is off of registrations we are going to convert to charges but at this point we just are not able to do it so we're using registrations and i can't break it out by type of uh, of uh, visit so we'll get there i just need some more time lots of people are working on that i should have it by my next month's report any questions on volume this is um, actually a really good presentation to have when, right before we're doing our budget update too, because as um, you all probably remember, in our budget, we have not adjusted for COVID, right? So this is all based on our historical run, based on you know things that we knew that were changing, but which was very little in this budget year. Uh -huh. So remind me, are we, uh, uh, is staff intending to present a final budget that does assume COVID? Uh so at this point, we're thinking it's not worth it, that it's better to go ahead and report based on our what we think our budget would have been. Uh, one, because the volumes are coming up. And two, if you look at the net bottom line with the funding, it, it seems like we would be chasing our tail. So this yes. way we can always report to where we think we would have been versus um, a hypothetical guess as to what COVID would do to us. That makes sense. We just need to continuously remind ourselves. So. Yes, I do. Uh, we, we've talked about it at Budget Oversight quite a bit. Um, you know, nobody has a perfect crystal ball, you know, when we'll, whether we'll have the vaccine or not or when and how long it'll take everybody to get vaccinated. Um, so maybe, you know, we're taking a glass half full approach here. But I do think it does give us better information. And I just had a quick question about the clinic visits. When you're saying we're, we're going by registration, is that for all of them or just the telehealth? For all. For everything. Okay. Yeah. We were reporting uh, uh, based on charges, the clinic visits. But when we couldn't do it for telehealth, um, we were having to have to do like an allocation and I wasn't comfortable with that. So we just decided, let's just go with registrations. And uh, how are, is most of the telehealth happening on site or, or do we have providers like working from home and things like that doing telehealth? I, my understanding is we have both and I don't know um, proportionally how much more is more doctors are working in home or in the office. I don't know if anyone else on the, in the um from ahs can answer that and my only the only reason for my question is to know how well registration is going to correlate with charges just because you know i don't know if doctors are doing their own check-in and check-out process and things like that so i'm just wondering if there's any concerns around you know registration and and, and charges correlating well in this scenario i i do have concerns but they're mitigated by the fact that we are supposed to be doing charge reconciliation, and I know that we are. So eventually, if there was a registration and no charge, it would get corrected. It may not be real time, but I think our systems are good and we would catch it. Thank you. I, Noha, my, my, my response to you, Noha, it's, it's sort of all over the board um, with regard to uh, uh, providers calling from home. I know for our service, for GI, we do about 95% were actually in the office rather than home. And, I, and I've heard variances across with regard to primary care, 
I think everyone's sort of doing it a little bit differently. I'm not sure that there's a system policy or I'm, I'm unaware of one, whether you can do it from home. And then the second issue about registrations, uh, operationally how it works for us is if they're on this, the television schedule, they sort of registered them all as arrived and then we work it out on the back end. Uh, to, it lets us facilitate ordering and all that kind of stuff. So it, it's certainly an imperfect process, but I think it's working decently. And then let's see what, what happens on the, on the financial side. Yes. So here are the July re report. Um, our net income was a loss of 7.3 million, which was um, 4.8 million worse than budget. And our EBITDA was a loss of um, 5.9 or basically 6 million. And uh, that was a $7.8 million negative variance. Um, so let's talk about why. Um, there's our variance in gross patient revenue of the 24.1 million. Um, most of that coming from outpatient services. We, we talked about that. We've looked at the um, outpatient surgery volume and the ED volume, which is definitely having a huge impact on outpatient service revenue. Professional fees, that's mostly being driven again by the fact that the telehealth charges are less than an in person visit charge. In regard to net revenue, it's uh, definitely better than June, but still not at target. We're off by 0.8. There's a couple reasons for that. There's the service mix, as I said, you know, the ED and the surgical procedure volumes are really important to us. Um, also, we budgeted some pretty big uh, rate increases and we budgeted them flatly through the year instead of building them up and we've only just started to renegotiate. So we don't even have a, a single agreement inked. So um, we're making progress on that and then we'll be coming back to you with our progress um, um, probably around the end of the year, calendar year timeframe on that. Um, behavioral health, has a significant impact because we did build in retro money for FY20 that we think we'll probably get around December and it's flatly um, shown in the budget. So uh, that's the one of the, the key drivers for that net revenue uh, variance. In supplementals, that is the behavioral health retro money I just talked about. We've, we've opted to reflect the uh, retroactive money from the county as a supplemental program, not because it is, it's actually for patient service revenue, but because the numbers have been so big, it skews the net patient service percentage and it would be meaningless for me to report it if I, if I was putting that retro money in net patient services. However, the auditors are likely to have me adjust it for the final audit. But I, I think um, there would be no it would not compare at all due to the timing differences. Like for instance, last year we got the FY14 through 18 in December, and then we got 19 in June, and then now we think we'll get 20 retro money in December. So, so it would be very, it would definitely skew things. So that's the revenue. Actually, Kim, uh, can I ask one quick question back on that last slide? Sure. And this is where I need to be informed a little bit. This the top line professional fees are reduced by telemedicine as these charges are lower than in-person visits. 
and and this this might be for Del Vecchio too or the legislative stuff. I, I thought they were holding this and maintaining a pay parity between uh, in-person visits and televisits during COVID health. And I thought there was a movement to maintain that pay parity. Uh, can someone inform me where we where we sit nationally on this or or effectively? Because it was always my understanding that at least during COVID it was going to be the same. Yeah. So before Devecchio responds, our CDM price, our gross price, is different. So when we you know we might charge $100 for an inpatient and we charge you know 80 for a telehealth visit. The net revenue, you're right, should be the same for both during this COVID period, during the disaster yeah. period. Um, we've run some reports and the, the, the reimbursement's been um, a little haphazard. Um, and we've, we'll probably run it again in about another month. Um, uh, it takes time for people to pay us. So the first reports we ran might've been too soon. Um, so um, I, I can give you an update on that probably next time too. Okay, yeah, just on the question of pay parity, because I'm, I'm, I'm hearing things from other organizations that it's sort of maintaining the same as pre-COVID with televisits. So that, that statement kind of, it confused what I thought I knew. Mm -hmm. Is that, did her, did her response clarify that for you? Or, or yeah, you, you I, want I, me to say a bit more? I, I think my, I, I, what I got from that is that you guys will follow up and tell me where that is, because yeah, I think in general, uh, and Kim, correct me if I'm misunderstanding this. So, so when we report on income uh, statement uh, statistics, these numbers are these are not actual cash. So, so cash reimbursement is is uh, uh, later, or, or you see that when you show the slide of what we collected based off of what we've uh, forecast. Uh, but okay. Which is is these, these are based off of our, our charge description master. So we take the visit, run it against the cost or the charge that's in our CDM, and then uh, calculate a uh, expected revenue across there based off of that. What the based, on, based on the historic pre-COVID model. Correct. What the reimbursement yeah. ends up being uh, might actually be more favorable based off of this expected practice now that uh, telehealth visits are compensated at the same level as a, a traditional visit uh, okay, for it. as long as that lasts. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's it's probably impacting um, the slightly the the collection rate being below budget, but the 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 professional service fee that are down six point two million million that's gross charges, and right. gross doesn't have any direct uh, correlation with net. Because gross is based on our fee schedule, our, our charge description master, so our, we charge less um, for a telemedicine visit. Um, our hope is that this structure will continue. It's, uh, and I don't know if Devecchio has any updates on uh, on whether we've made any traction with CMS. No, that. no. I mean, it's it's uh, obviously uh, it's not just us; it's the entire. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. delivery system. So no, uh, um, Trustee Buquette is, is stating the latest. It's just a continued push uh, for people to uh, uh, to have all payers, uh, public and privates, continue to support telehealth in, in the way that we have at the beginning of this pandemic. And it's not clear that that's going to sustain, but so far, uh, my understanding is no one has backed off of it yet. Yeah, Thank you. It's, uh, people are, I think, are really, really liking it. And there's a lot of support for it, at least in what I've read. Um, so we'll see. So um, 
the other government's unfavorable 1.4 again that's the um, behavioral budget spread issue um, we'll have to make the decision when we do the final budget if we want to learn um, from these first months and true up budget or not there's some positives to doing that and some negatives to doing that so we'll have to work through that So here's the operating expense side. Um, we are favorable 3.4 million. Um, again, labor will be on the next slide. Um, our physician contract services are favorable due to lower uh, clinic fees and surgery and the OMFS uh, contract, there's some vacancies. So the surgery fees, I'm sure are probably because of the lower volume of surgery so we're probably not having calling in docs to do surgery as much um purchase services it's amazing there across all the departments they're favorable in fact they're so favorable that they were even able to offset a timing difference for recruiting that's for like linkedin and some of those other um, internet advertising that was a uh, negative three hundred six thousand. Materials and supplies that are mostly favorable due to the lower volumes, um, particularly prosthesis, not doing that many surgeries and food. Um, facilities were unfavorable. Again, we we're just having a lot of uh, issues with plant maintenance. Um, some of it's tiny, but um, at Highland, it was a $247,000 um, negative variance for the chiller and some um, plumbing issues. And our electricity was over by 148,000. Uh, depreciation is lower. Again, we spread it evenly, and we haven't purchased anything yet, so we're not. We haven't capitalized anything, so it's going to be favorable in the beginning of the year and unfavorable at the end of the year. And uh, general administrative, uh, like purchase services, are are being you know controlled, and uh, probably a lot of it is a timing difference. For labor costs, um, again, like June, the um, the favorable variance in salary and wages is pretty small at 0.4, but we're seeing the big increase in registry of 1.8. Um, so they're not offsetting as they were, you know, earlier in the year, and that is being driven by the COVID-related leaves. Um, the retirement there, you can see the fiscal year 21 impact of the ACERA actuarial report. Um, our current year retirement cost is slightly favorable, but you're seeing a credit, which is reducing the balance sheet liability for the long term because uh, the, in the investment performance was better. So now GASB 68 and GASB 75 say, you have to reduce your liability on your um, balance sheet. And the only way we can do that is a credit through the income statement. So that's why you're seeing that. We could adjust the budget for this. It won't impact our EBITDA target, but it might make it easier to present now that we know what at least the ACERA portion, which is the biggest portion is. Um, that's good there. Here's the FTE trend. Um, again, you know we've we've run with this uh, vacancy factor of you know more than 100 physicians, 
um, pretty much, you know, all always. And even if you go back before this uh, slide starts, um, but with the leave of absence now, we are, you know, butting up against the actual budget FTE. So we're not seeing that favorable variance. And here's the balance sheet slide. Um, our gross days in AR um, are up a bit and our net days went down. Normally those would move together. So that is strange. And again, it has to do with those adjustments that we made. Um, we uh, uh, also are reserving 100% on our legacy AR because it's now nine months old. So as cash comes in, we'll actually record it on a cash basis. So that is something different as well. Uh, accounts payable uh, continues to look good because you know we've had room on our line of credit. And I mentioned in the last presentation that we were gonna start reporting the county receivables and payables uh, uh, in our balance sheet before uh, we handled them on a cash basis. But the concern was if we handle them on a cash basis, we might lose track. So we didn't want that to happen. So now it is officially on our books. It will be interesting to see what happens when we send a confirmation to the county for these amounts, whether they'll confirm that they actually do owe Alameda Health System um, this money. So I've just kind of laid out what all these line items are. Um, so- uh, Wait, I'm sorry, Kim, could you say that again? <laughs> So as part of our audit for our receivables and also for most payables, um, the auditors will confirm with whoever you owes you money or who you owe money if the amount is accurate. And so we will actually send a confirmation, the auditors will, to the county saying you owe Alameda Health System the um, capital cost reimbursement and the capital designation funds. And it'll be interesting to see how they respond to the confirmation because we've never done that before, right? I would hope they would respond positively. <laughs> well, we've, we've been told they did not set up a separate fund. So we'll see. Hmm. So uh, here's the, the cash collection and you can see there in July that we were quite strong. I mean, considering that July is well into the COVID collection period, we're obviously collecting money from um, stabilizing uh, our Sapphire installs. So that's really good news. And I, I, I don't wanna, we'll, I have a report to give you later on in, Terry Manifesto is going to join me, and it's uh, a really positive report. So we can I'll, uh, I'll hold my comments till then. Mm -hmm. And here's the supplemental schedule. Um, nothing really different from June. Uh, amounts have changed a bit, but um, they're still reflecting the same values of you know money that we owe uh, that 137 million, which is in the also in the budget presentation. And here's the um, net negative balance. This is uh, very consistent to what we uh, reflected in our last report. Um, we're 
showing with the 137 million of recruitments that we are going to be at about uh, 280 or so. So I think I said 275. We started out the. Uh, oh wait a minute, sorry. Let me start again. I want to get it right this time. So um, without with the recruitments, we're about 285. That's where the red line is. If you deduct 137 for those recruitments, we're down at the 150 range, which it would still be over the year-end target for the NMB. Um, but what's really interesting when you look at this graph, because now you know through July is actual, you can see you know we got these um, advanced funds that really helped us and brought down the NMB significantly at the end of the year, and then. Um, now, with uh, COVID still continuing, you're seeing us go up almost to the NNB line. Um, and then we're supposed to pay these recruitments by um, December 31st. So you see the spike in the red and also um, the blue just kind of hovering right around the NNB, which is not that much different from where we were um you know last year it's just kind of we hit it you know every so often depending upon timing of supplementals and then in uh, march is when we really go over and then we don't end the the year um achieving the the line of credit although what we would typically do is hold vendor payments so that we would make the nnb at june 30 which is a possibility at that kind of at that level of projection, but no way with the recruitment, the blue, you know, the red line versus the blue line. So it looks like we're gonna we're gonna hit it now. We're gonna be in trouble around mid mid to late November, All right? Yeah. So we this shows that uh, it'll be right around December um, where we go over. Originally, we had thought it would be. Um, I think it was like, I think it was September, October in the last one, but then we got that additional 8.35 million plus we're planning on that other 5 million from COVID funding. So that's pushed it out to December. Got it. All right, and so I think this also says, correct me if I'm wrong, that you take the blue line, which would be there are no recruitments involved. We still have uh, a problem with cash right. later, but we still have a problem this year with cash we we uh, we're underwater, um, so we have a fundamental uh, threshold problem with our finances. Yep. Yes, as long as we're kicking up against the NNB, then we're always managing to it, and uh, that uh, causes a lot of operational issues. You know, uh, so um, and you know, at this level, we would be holding you know, payments to vendors. That's that's the only way we could get underneath it, so. Yeah, I, I, I've been thinking about this. I you, you wanna hear from other trustees on this of whether we should um, have a discussion at some point um, in the next several months about um, uh, account, accounts payable, uh, about paying vendors, paying our bills. Because I just cringe when I hear we're holding we have to hold back payment. That's there are all sorts of costs to that in terms of what you can get from your vendors in the future. There are vendors probably choosing not to work with the system, knowing that we're uh, 
at risk of not paying them on time. So I, I wonder if there's a desire to have a longer conversation about that. Um, you know, maybe set some goals that some standards that uh, we can uh, use in our conversation with our partners of the county. Does that make sense? Perfect sense. Sounds like yeah, a very worthwhile discussion. Yeah. Sorry, Joe. I, no, I, no. I, the other thing it points out is how critical our net negative balance meeting with the with the county is. I mean, it's been put off a couple of times, and I think we really need to sit down with them and have some planning so we're not in a crisis mode. Yeah, Joe. Uh, yeah, I, I remember way back when we uh, when I was new to the board and we hit a financial uh, uh, challenge, and vendors were going to the county supervisors and complaining about not getting paid by the system and putting a lot of pressure on us. And some of these vendors are small businesses; you know, they're they're barely able to make their payroll, and it, it just it's not a good look when you consider the community we serve. Um, uh, yeah, and, and, and so. I think it is a worthwhile discussion, and I think it does highlight um, the precarious nature that uh, place that we're in. Good. Good. Back to back to you, Kim. All right, and so uh, this is just kind of a summary here. Um, you know, just pointing out, you know, we, this is kind of a moving target because we've got a lot of uh, high-risk variables going on. Um, obviously. Measure A funding, it, it looks like it picked up. Will it continue to pick up? I, mean, I don't know. It's certainly not at the level it was last year. And then uh, the COVID pandemic, I mean, we, we've uh, been very fortunate to get some, some funding and, and we are hoping that we'll get some more, but uh, it's, it's unknown and changes. It changes every month and it changes by, you know, magnitude of dollars. It's not immaterial. Uh, and then here's the recruitments, the, the 67, that we believe will come due by uh, 1231. As uh, most of you know, the 09 uh, was processed on September 4th. That's a net of about 7 million uh, of that 67. Um, so that you know, we reflected, you know, we haven't gotten there yet. I don't, I, I wouldn't, this is only the July report that we paid it on September 4th. And then we've got the FQ recruitment and the Medi-Cal P14 cost reports. And then I put the SPA down there because it's a big number, uh, but it has been delayed. It won't be next fiscal year. What, what's the ballpark number on that? The SPA, I put it in there, the $30 million. Oh, I'm sorry. It's on the, yeah. Thank you. And, and Kim, just, I mean, I know we're reporting just through July, but uh, we do have the... Uh, August uh, measure A uh, numbers and it did it did drop down by three million between July and August uh, as the AHS portion uh, four million overall. That's significant. Well, we yeah, if you if you pull that out over twelve months, that is really significant. Sorry. <laughs> I mean one month, so we'll have to see what the trajectory is. But it was holding up for June and July. Uh, and then uh, August dropped down. Yeah, it's kind of strange because, uh, you know, May was not good at all. And then it picked up and then it came back down again. It's a mm. little bit of a, a roller coaster. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, any questions for CFO? 
Okay, not hearing anything. I'm going to move us on. Thank you very much, Ken. You're welcome. Uh, move on to B2, uh, Chief Operating Officer Report. Yes, thank you, uh, Trustee uh, Quinn. Uh, well, one of the things, if I can, uh, if you all can recall, I had presented to the to the board uh, several months back uh, an opportunity for us to reevaluate and revisit how we provided a COO report that we felt was more meaningful and would provide you greater detail as it relates to what's happening on the on the units, on the hospitals, and our facilities. And so, uh, I do appreciate the uh, you know the support and the opportunity to do that. Uh, what we have done is uh, we've put together a, a summary, and we're looking at presenting by SBU. You, although you have the dashboards, which we mirrored um, against our True North metric dashboard. And uh, these are our dashboards that reflect key metrics and key performance indicators that our SBU leaders are, are monitoring, tracking on, on a regular basis to ensure that we're in alignment with uh, our overall system performance. And so now that Kim has done a tremendous amount of work and has done a great job in putting together some very comprehensive financial reports, we felt that this was a better way of reflecting to you all how we're managing in the front line and how we're managing the operations directly. And so uh, with that, I've asked Janet as we are, we're starting with our acute SBU, including uh, behavioral health, John George. And so John, Janet has provided you all with a, with a detailed written executive summary uh, that supports the dashboards, but uh, I'm, I'm gonna turn it over to her to give you the, the highlights of, of that report, and certainly we will uh, entertain any questions you may have. Hi, thanks, Louise. So uh, just uh, want everyone to understand this is for the period ending July 31st, 2020. Um, and there's a couple of key metrics that we'll focus on, but the big story really is COVID uh, and the impact that we've had both in supplies and in staffing. And so it'll kind of highlight a few things that Kim said, but it'll bring a little bit greater detail. Uh, as Luis mentioned, this is just for uh, the acute care, including John George. So Alameda, San Leandro, Highland, and John George that I'll be discussing. Uh, in terms of throughput uh, on the observed to expected length of stay, all acute care campuses are exceeding their target with an overall 1.04 versus a target of 110. Um, that's a little bit easier to do when the census was down and we were able to, to um, make some headway there. Uh, border hours, those are people or patients that are held in the ED um, that are admitted patients and they're held for various reasons. And we have a couple of different measurements. So we measure uh, Highland and- Are you sharing something? No. It's oh. in the packet and- Okay, got it, thanks. If we fall in, sorry. <laughs> um, so in terms of the border hours for Highland, it is just uh, the inpatients that are admitted for Alameda and San Leandro, we're measuring the border hours for behavioral health that go to John George. And so uh, for Highland for the month of July, the total hours of border for patients waiting for beds was 5,964, uh, largely due to um, our throughput issues that we continue to work through uh, and uh, an unavailability of beds in the ICU. Uh, you know, July 4th uh, kind of took off with traumas and we opened things up in the Bay Area and we had more traumas. And at one point we had more uh, traumas and patients than we had beds for. And so um, we've leveled that back out, but that does cause some boarding hours. Uh, San Leandro, the total number of borders, and again, this is for behavioral health, was 647 hours. And for Alameda, it was a, a paltry 83 hours. And so they typically do not see the, the volumes of behavioral health that the other uh, facilities do. 
um, we're working with uh, uh, RepCycle or the revenue team to make sure that we're recouping every cent that we can so that we know we're getting uh, most of the dollars, but there are some situations where a patient may come in as a ICU patient waiting for a bed and then be downgraded to SDU or telemetry. Uh, the system right now in Epic does not automatically change those down. They would only recoup the lowest level of charge. So by the time they went to the floor, if they were a telemetry bed, we would lose those ICU charges. And so that's just a glitch in the system. And we've uh, been working with uh, Betsy and Teresa Cooper, um, and they've identified the glitches, and we, we should be able to recoup those going forward. And then we're looking with John George, if those are patients that are admitted to John George, um, are there costs that John George recoups that can be given back to the EDs that are holding? So we're, we're working through that. Uh, in terms of avoidable days, uh, unfavorable overall by 41, uh, largely due to the more stringent testing that uh, COVID testing that we need for SNFs. And so uh, we've got people waiting for SNF beds that have to be tested and, and you know, go through the system before they can be accepted. Um, there is uh, the, the building H that Richard Espinoza is working through as kind of the, uh, the COVID patient funnel. And there's more information that will come out, but I think Kim uh, alluded to that, that we're, we're waiting to stand that up. But it's, I think they have a start date of uh, potentially November. Uh, readmission rate is not meeting target. It's overall readmissions uh, sitting at a 12.4% versus a target of 12.2. Uh, we've done a deeper dive and it seems that uh, Alameda is actually driving those numbers up. And when we dug even deeper, it's because of the uh, congestive heart failure patients. So we're looking at what are they not getting on discharge that they need to keep them from coming back in. Um, and then we have a, a, a new and improved uh, readmission committee that is headed by Dr. Swift and um, co-chaired by me. So we're looking at overall, what are we missing that patients continue to come back at, at, at the high rates that they are. Um, here's the, the, the big uh, information for me, I think, is, is we talked about the staffing uh, and the FMLA leaves. So if you combine all of uh, the FTEs on leave for uh, all of the acute care sites, including John George, you come out with 91.91 uh, FTEs total that are out uh, that we've had to replace. And so that's a significant number of nursing staff, uh, techs, but, uh, you know, that the units are um, without. And so I'll, I'll break it down by uh, hospital quickly. Alameda had a rate of about 13%, San Leandro 12.8 and Highland at 14.9. John George at one point had a um, FMLA rate at 24.6%, but they've dropped back down to about 11.9% now. So we saw a lot of people take the leaves initially when we uh, offered the COVID leave. Um, it kind of leveled out a little bit. And then when school went back in, um, many people that didn't take the initial leave opted to start taking it uh, in terms of uh, the school timing. So, um, so that's been a, a pretty big challenge. It uh, has driven our um, overtime because a lot of times people take a leave and it's at the last minute. So they might tell you on a Friday, I'm going to go out on a leave on a Monday. We're not able to get travelers. And so we rely on our own staff to cover those shifts with overtime or they're due to come back from a leave and they'll tell you on a Friday, I'm not going to come back on Monday like I was. So again, we're scrambling to, to cover that. Um, and then travelers are getting harder and harder to get. So we had to bump up to the tier three and tier four level of pay uh, to be able to entice people. And I think uh, in all fairness, I think travelers are tired. You know, they kind of range all over the nation and um, they've gone through New York and worked themselves out west, west and now they're, they're uh, taking a bit of a break. And so, um, 
we're hoping eventually the leaves will uh, figure itself out and people will come back to work um, and, and we'll be able to drop our, our traveler rates. We also uh, onboarded 15 new grad students and they're working through their 12-week program. So we'll have those um, bodies as well to put into the count soon and, and they're doing a fantastic job. Um, in order to proactively manage staffing, our managers are doing weekly productivity calls to make sure that when the census drops, we flex our staff appropriately so that we have savings there. Um, they're looking at this, the census every four hours and then flexing staffing appropriately. So um, it was pretty uh, significant learning for some, but they've come a long way and they're starting to understand that the, the, the dollars that you can recoup by, by um, staff or flexing are, are pretty significant. Um, the other thing that we were doing is we had observers who were watching people don and doff their PPE and go into the room. Um, we are now six months into this, and so we figure that people are pretty comfortable, and we kind of surveyed the staff, and um, they're fine without uh, having the, um, this, the observers watch them. We put mirrors up in some places so staff can look at themselves before they go in the room and make sure they didn't forget their, their face shield or their, their mask, and, and we have had no issues with that. But that was... Um, typically three per unit per shift. Uh, so that's a significant number of people that are back into the count now. Um, for missed meals and breaks, we've really shined the, the spotlight on that and reduced it by over 40%, uh, which is a significant amount of money. And so um, that's just, uh, you know, letting people know you're over on your missed meals and breaks. You need to put a process in place. You need to manage this and just making people aware that the managers uh, and assistant managers, we've had some, some significant savings with that. Uh, HPPD, which is hours per patient day, we're not meeting the target, um, but we found out that that was really a, um, a skill mix issue. So if we had a monitor tech out, for example, on a leave or call in sick, we were replacing that with um, uh, with a, an RN, which is much higher cost than a monitor tech. And so we've uh, cross-trained some techs from the ED to be monitor techs. We've also uh, cross-trained people from different areas to cover those. And then John George had a similar issue where their MHSs would um, be, be pulled for one-to-one uh, uh, -one staffing. They wouldn't have the bodies and they replaced with RNs. They have closed the gap on a lot of their staffing issues. And so they're able to staff appropriately and not use the RNs for those roles. Um, Overtime, uh, again, it's up. I mentioned that for two primary causes, the leaves uh, coming and going off the leaves. Uh, and then for John George specifically, the overtime was up and they've had significant reductions just by filling the vacancies. And so they continued to whittle away with that. Um, and then finally, the revenue and expense management um, charge timeliness or the percent of charges posted within two days uh, is about 86% overall. Um, and that's a current uh, number. We had a significant amount of work to do with Epic to make sure that we were charging. Uh, again, um, Betsy from Kim's team came and partnered with Teresa Cooper. We had a lot of learnings from that. We've done a lot of training for the, the, the charge posters. Um, and we've closed the gap on that. So we're going to see a lot, a lot more uh, positive results results. OR room turnover times, the target is 30 minutes and, and no one is meeting that target. Um, Highland is at 43 minutes, San Leandro 46 and Alameda at 44. We don't have metrics at this point that we can pull from Epic uh, to guide us what we're at on a daily basis, but we're working through that and, and Mark, Amy and his team are uh, working to get those, um, those uh, metrics for us so that we can drill down on what the reasons are uh, and pull that together. Uh, the other big interesting item that came was purchase services were unfavorable 
mainly due to laundry costs. And so as we started to run low on scrubs, we brought in uh, washable scrubs or washable gowns rather. Uh, we had a higher uh, use of scrubs and then we uh, obviously had higher use of linens as you uh, terminally clean these rooms between patients. And then we found that staff were uh, taking um, too much linen into the room as well. And then when the patient left, we ended up sending all that to the laundry. So uh, we're starting to, to decrease on that. Um, the isolation gowns were a pretty high ticket item at one point when we uh, were running low and we were really at the mercy of uh, whoever could give us those gowns. Typically that gown runs $4.21 up to $5.22. We were paying at some point upwards of $72 a gown. And so uh, we've scaled that back. We've, we've uh, got our vendors supplying us. Um, and so we're much better off with that. The other expense in that is we bought the washable gowns and so they're ours and then we just pay the laundry expenses. So that's, that's baked into that number as well. Um, and then surgical medical supplies are below budget, but that's due to a, an obviously to a, a lower surgical volume uh, and a lower uh, elective cases. So um, that's kind of in a nutshell what's going on in acute care. I will say that um, 2020 has been uh, pretty challenging all the way around, uh, but you know I think there are some positives that have come of this as well. We've done a lot more rounding on our staff. Uh, Del Vecchio has his uh, weekly CEO desktop chat. Uh, that still continues to get upwards of 300 uh, people tuning in every um, every Wednesday. Uh, again, the rounding, uh, intranet updates, uh, I think it's brought the teams together. So we had people initially and a lot of people had uh, justifiable fear and angst around COVID. Um, those people have now shown such resilience of, ah, we got this, this is just business as usual. And so uh, while that fear is still there and it's a healthy fear, uh, I think that we've, we've pulled together as a team where the communication has opened up and feel people feel a lot more comfortable uh, that they're supported in their role. And so um, there was a comment made from the physician group at San Leandro, uh, how well supported they feel through this whole thing. And so that was uh, very encouraging to hear. So I'll open it up to questions if anybody's got uh, questions or comments. Uh, I do, I do have a question about the, um, the price gouging that took place back in March and April. Um, I, I mean, I just think it's it's appalling, and uh, I know it was universal. Is there a way we could moving forward? Um, I, I don't know how to how to phrase this uh, politely. Um, hold those vendors accountable by uh, not doing business with them anymore and stating why. And and also, is there any reporting that can be done to any federal agencies around this issue? Um, and I don't know if anyone cares, uh, but it, I, I just think it's awful. And we should report it to someone and and, and note our uh, our protest and displeasure with it. Yeah, I think, you know, initially we, we took what we could get, and I think that's uh, leveled out. I think we're in a space now where we're working with Medline predominantly, um, and, you know, we're, we're at a point where they're able to supply us with our stock and we're, we're really conscious of our use and, and monitoring our use. Um, it was nothing that Alameda did wrong. And again, yeah, I, I, I agree. You know, we heard about price gouging everywhere though. Amazon had issues and, you know, everybody did. And I think um, that's flattened out. That was based uh, in my opinion that it was, uh, you know, fear-based where everybody didn't know where their next supply was coming from. So they took it. But uh, Luis, do you have more to comment on that from, from Baljeet's side of the house? 
Yeah, yeah. What I would say, Janet, I think like like you indicated, and interested degrees. I mean, certainly there was uh, some of that going on in some areas. And and to your point, uh, we we didn't do a whole lot of business. I mean, when you know, I, I mean, it's just unsustainable. I couldn't continue with that. So we've been very very active in looking at alternative resources and other individuals that can provide similar supplies and uh, alternate equivalents, as we call them. And so we've been working through that. And we've been doing a lot of business with people that we normally and traditionally have not done business with in the past. And so uh, who have really stepped up and have been able to provide us uh, the necessary supplies and, and a very reasonable cost. And so uh, things are starting to level off. The supply chain was strained uh, you know, heavily early on, uh, again, probably driven by many different factors. Um, but uh, now we're starting to see that in some areas uh, we're, we're continuing to get consistent replenishments and uh, you know our allocations are coming back almost to to where they used to be and so we're managing that closely we're continuing to manage our stock we've really revamped our 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 um, storage or our, our uh, PPE our supply uh, inventories and so we're, we're continuing to to position ourselves and prepare recognizing that you know we, I, I don't want to be put in a position where I'm I'm scrambling at the you know d- during a situation because you know we see a ramp up or we see a need our utilization goes up and then I'm struggling to try and get supplies so we're really trying to be very very efficient to where we don't have uh, excess inventory but we want to make sure that we have adequate inventory to to plan and forecast for anything that may happen here coming up into the flu season and into the uh, the beginning of the year Yeah, I, I I appreciate that you've you've done a good job, and you you were you're you're uh, I, my my comment isn't about what we did uh, retrospectively. More, is there a way to um, I, I don't know? Uh, does somebody else know what I'm trying to say? I mean, it just yeah, feels like we need to tell there someone. Was, there was reporting, or there is reporting that you can do to the. Attorney General um, for people who are actually price gouging and Alameda County DA did actually I think bring charges against some store at least one store that I remember that was like charging ten dollars for a mask or something ridiculous um, and so there was a lot of that going on uh, early on but um, yeah but in ter- but I think your question was also like was it any of our normal vendors that were doing this and then therefore can we can we use our purchasing power to 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 make a statement but it sounds like what I'm hearing is it's not our usual vendors. Right. It was our vendors yeah. didn't have it, so we had to go outside. Is that? Yeah. Okay, so uh, this is a new way to report. Um, are there any any thoughts, any feedback? I, I appreciate the report. I think it, it's uh, very helpful, but I uh, want to make sure that other trustees are getting what they need here. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the report a lot. Um, I thought it was really great. I, there, I did have a question that doesn't necessarily have to be answered now, but in terms of some of the metrics like the uh, readmission rate um, and just wondering if that has a fiscal impact that can be uh, relayed uh, here, if so. And then, um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly interested in this and don't want to spend time here at finance about this matter, but I know that, um, you know, hospitals don't have that much control over actually linkage to ongoing care unless we're also the primary care provider. So I guess just a general question as to whether um, we're talking about our relationships with community providers in terms of trying to address this for some of our chronic, chronically ill patients. So I guess a two-part question, if possible. 
Yeah, so in terms of the, you know, the dollar amount for readmissions, that, that's something that we can look at for sure. And I, I think that's a, a great metric to track. Uh, you know, the other piece, and I'll let Del Vecchio jump in as well to help out with this, but uh, we are uh, really trying to partner closely with Alameda County. Uh, you know, we, we, are, we have staff that are working at the Operation Comfort um, and, you know, really trying to partner and position ourselves to be the provider of choice. And so uh, I think there's some work that would spin off into that, looking at readmissions. And, and who do they go to and why is that happening? And so um, anything more to add to that, Del Vecchio, but it's just my thoughts. Actually, I apologize. Somebody popped in the office. I heard the first part about the uh, uh, cost impact of readmission, but I, I, can you repeat the second part of the question that you were responding to? Yeah, it looks like we're going to have a team sort of looking at what we can do to, to reduce that. And so one of my questions was just about relationships with community providers. Um, I guess I was thinking of it the other way, Janet, but that's important too. But because many of the patients that probably go to the come to the hospital go to primary care somewhere else. And at least I know right now, especially, is that some primary care offices are like closed and, you know, all these other things happening. So I'm just curious about is that partly what's driving that? And also, are we looking to just deepen relationships with other community providers on um, making sure that they're getting in for that hospital follow-up visit? Um, right. Yeah. To- so the, re- the readmissions, uh, as, you, as you're pointing out, readmissions can come from, uh, um, uh, certainly from uh, people discharged home or to the community and need a follow-up with either uh, one of our PCPs or a community-based uh, a primary care provider. Others uh, uh, happen uh, sometimes in a like a uh, post-acute environment. So if a patient ends up in a SNF and then something happens, uh, obviously a readmission. Well, yeah, that that also is a source of readmissions. We have worked uh, both with care management and our post-acute uh, uh, leadership with Richard and Sheila Lizewa to create um, a SNF partnership. Uh, where we we've been able to address it more aggressively that way, where we we've actually developed a sort of panel of SNPs that are designed to kind of collaborate with us to um, um, address uh, uh, throughput in terms of our ability to get patients into SNP settings, but also quality metrics of which readmission is one of them. So how well are they managing the patient so that they don't end up, uh, um, you know, um, um, uh, backsliding or, or uh, of course, uh, re, um, uh, they get sicker and end up back in our setting. We also, you may recall, uh, did the same sort of thing with our home health agencies um, under uh, our, and we've been tracking that metric on our dashboard for a number of years now where we have partnership with home health entities where uh, they were also incentivized uh, based off of their ability to uh, serve, meet patients in the home health setting and keep them from being readmitted. So so we've done some of those in those two post-acute settings with the PCP community. I don't know uh, what and to what extent we've we've been involved with that, except to you know actually ensure we had the epic or, or the issue with uh, or not issue, but the uh, engagement with um, what was it called uh, Eddie, the Emergency Department Information Exchange, where that was helping us on the outpatient basis. So when a patient was admitted to the ED, that was an automatic trigger to a PCP that had also signed up on the Eddie, and a lot of the uh, CHC and clinics were there, so they would get triggered knowing when their, their uh, member had been in our ED and were, was being discharged to uh, uh, pro, uh, proactively uh, facilitate follow-up. But I'd have to look and see if we've done anything beyond that for a post-discharge with the primary care community. I, nothing comes to mind at this point. 
Yeah, and I, you know, I don't want to minimize it, but it it is quote unquote as simple as uh, you know, really starting from square one and and uh, going down to the lowest level to why are they coming back in the first place, and then who are these these patients? And so I think once we get through some of that uh, initial work, we'll have a direction that'll take us in in a you know at least if we can chunk them into different buckets, we can knock off different areas and focus on that without kind of spreading ourselves too thin. So mm-hmm. uh, more work to come on that, but it's uh, it's not super high, but it, you know fourteen percent at, at a, a hospital as small as Alameda is, is higher than we want it for sure. Yeah, the, the, the general industry target, I haven't updated myself on this, but um, a few years back, I recall the target was like in the upper teens, like below below 20%. So a readmission rate of, you know, 17 to 19% was considered um, um, not acceptable, but kind of uh, par for the course, given all the reasons why someone may uh, be readmitted, some of which may not necessarily lend itself to being avoidable. Um, there's penalties. Um, there, I mean, there's oh, penalties definitely, for Medicare and okay. That's I right. just want to make sure. I, okay. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right about that. Even when they are, are aren't, uh, I, I think even when they are viewed as avoidable because there's a bundle uh, in some respects, like you're paid for a course of care. If they come back within 30 days uh, for anything related to that, then it's considered a readmission, even if it was uh, unavoidable. Right. Yeah. Well, Trustee Shaquin, if I just, uh, so once again, just I wanted to, to say thank you for the opportunity to to reevaluate and revisit uh, the, the format. Thank you for the positive feedback. Uh, we will continue to fine tune this. Uh, again, our goal has always been to ensure that we're providing you greater details and not, uh, you know, what I felt, I think in the past, we were somewhat regurgitating the great work that, uh, you know, our CFO was already presenting. And so, now this is hopefully bringing you greater insights to what's happening in the front lines, what our teams are doing, and our SBU leaders can provide that detail. Uh, and, and really, uh, you know, as we continue to focus on that intersection between quality and finance, giving you all that information that really ties into uh, how operations directly impact our performance financially as an organization while delivering high-quality care. And so that's that's the focus, and hopefully we've hit that. We'll continue to fine-tune it. I certainly welcome any feedback from our trustees, um, and we'll continue to make sure you get uh, the information you need that will help inform how we're making decisions and how we're moving forward. So thank you for the opportunity. Great, uh, and thank you for reaching out early on this. Uh, so there were several conversations about this report before, before it got here. And it included uh, Trustee Bouquet uh, for his feedback on the quality side. Um, I, I know there was a, a meeting actually this week, I think, because of his busy schedule. But, uh, Janet, I appreciate uh, you, you reporting out. Look forward to um, watching this over time. You know that you, you set up sort of a format here, and then we're going to be watching trends and seeing things that uh, are moving, and, and uh, it'll generate some good conversation, hopefully. I look forward to being held accountable, so thank you. (laughs) Nicely put. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, we're going to move on to uh, revenue cycle, and we're back to our CFO. Where'd she go out to dinner? (laughs) That's a talk. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I have uh, Terry Manifesto joining me. She's in the waiting room. So, Mike, maybe you could let her in. Terry Manifesto is our new vice president of Revenue Cycle. Um, she uh, most recently comes from El Camino Hospital. And uh, she also had a lot of experience um, with Sutter. Um, she has just been phenomenal since the day she started. 
Um, she really understands Epic having gone through two other installs. Um, she's just, a, you know, I, this is my first time working on Epic, so I've had to learn a lot. Uh, she's taught me a lot already. I think she's taught um, everyone in our organization <laughs> quite a bit already. So I'm really excited to have her here, and she is uh, really uh, knocking it out of the park, and you're going to see that in the in the upcoming revenue cycle presentation. I think she's going to start with a couple policies um, and give us an update on that. Let's see. I don't see her joining yet. Mike, have you uh, let her in? She says she's waiting. Uh, she's not for this meeting, there's no one in the waiting room. Oh, that's not good. Um, let's see. I just text her to see what's going on here. Yeah, she said she was in the waiting room. Hmm. Is there a, I sent her the uh, invite that was in my, in my calendar, Mike. Uh, is that the one she should be using that link? Yes. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, I had seen a message from her uh, a while back and saying she was in the waiting room, but that was right just before the meeting started, so. I wonder if we want to go to uh, item C and then come back. Sure, we can do that. Just in the interest of time. Yeah, I'm surprised though. So I wonder what happened. And hopefully, hopefully she's not sitting in the wrong room. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking maybe we could resend her the link or something. I don't know, Mike, if you could do that. It's a good idea. Resend it to her. Oh, thank you, Rana. Okay, so let me pull up the budget presentation. Yeah, so uh, before we go there, we have a couple speakers on the, okay, this you. item C. And um, uh, so, Rana, I understand we have a couple speakers. Correct. We have a total of three speakers. Um, I'm sorry, hold on. I need to pull up their names. Well, I have a Mr. Pallott and uh, Ms. Colvin. Yes. If you're on the call, I understand the two of you want to cede your time to Ms. Batter. Yes. That is correct. So there's three of us on the list, but uh, we thought it would be better for one of us to just present during our time. Okay, that that's fine. Um, thank you. And uh, Ms. Batter, um, with the combined time of three minutes each, that gives you nine minutes. So I'd ask you to start now. Need to be in. Okay, great. Can you all hear me? Yes. Okay, I'm going to share my screen. Um, and uh, I have a brief PowerPoint presentation. Um, and I it was sent to you guys before the meeting. I made some tiny changes to it. 
Um, and also we sent a spreadsheet that's associated with the data that we're going to show um, that, that details how we came to the numbers that we came to. So the reason we're here today is because, um, you know, a year and maybe a half ago, uh, our department, which is the um, Outpatient Behavioral Health Intensive Outpatient Psych Services Program, which has been around for a long time, was kind of came up on the radar as a money losing program. And that was presented um, last year during the middle of the huge budget crisis. We came up as one of seven departments with the least amount of debt, but more than we expected. It was caught our department by surprise because based on our long performance of being a money-making program and our, and our sort of really well understood costs, we couldn't understand like why there was this huge deficit. So we you know, had engaged with our leadership who provided a spreadsheet to us that we assume was presented to you as well. Um, but what we just got was a summary uh, kind of cover sheet with none of the supporting data that was behind it plugged in. So we, you know, we were trying to really get down to the granular level to see, like, is this a structural issue? Is this an anecdotal issue? Because our program had just gone through a massive expansion that was not funded with existing staff. We were not getting reimbursements for a new outpatient program. So um, we wanted to kind of try and understand what is really going on here. Is this anecdotal or is it serious? And if it's anecdotal, obviously we don't want to scrap a program that's serving several hundred severely mentally ill people very well. Um, and if it's a structural issue, we want to fix it. So we asked for the data over the last year. We've met several times, but we have never gotten the data that we've asked for. Eventually our union requested it. We never got the data. So we really didn't understand what is going on in the roots. And so we ended up creating our own uh basically our own reconstructed spreadsheet of costs and what we think would be the appropriate revenues based on what our reimbursement rates are for Medicare, which have always been, like we always get all of our reimbursements from Medicare eventually. And it was interesting to hear um, the CFO speak earlier about how the long lag is um, in terms of getting that behavioral health money. Because in fact, like the spreadsheet that we were presented was 2018. And I just heard her say they didn't get 2014 to 2018 reimbursements until last year. So like, where did the data come from in the spreadsheet that we were presented with anyway, in terms of revenue? So anyway, what I'm here to provide you with is the comparison of those two sheets, the one that we were provided by our administration, what we constructed and the discrepancies we saw, which were very large. So I'm just gonna give you a quick um, a view of this uh, with my, my presenter view. Um, sorry, I gotta move this out of the way. Um, uh, the, the spreadsheet that we sent is there. We are not accountants. We know this is going to look terrible. We also are not good at PowerPoint. It's very intimidating watching all these detailed sheets that look so nice. Ours is kind of crappy. So uh, forgive us for that. And what we really want you to do is look at our numbers and tell us where we're wrong. We want to be held accountable. We want to get to the truth. We do not want to lose the program that is serving so many people. If there's not a real problem, if there is, we want to know what it is. So we're we're inviting you to invite us back to go into more detail in a future meeting, hopefully, because we know the budget is coming up and there's a lot of proposals about changing our program. And if they're based on faulty assumptions, that would be a real tragedy. So we want to know the truth. Um, okay, so that's basically our, the big picture is, which I'll go into in a second, is that the cost discrepancies we found was that um, based on the spreadsheet that was provided to us by Dr. Wise, um, compared to our known fully staffed, for everyone working their full hours employee costs, our cost should be $1.183734 million less than what was reported as a cost on the administration's spreadsheet. So that's a very large gap. Where is that coming from? 
Are someone charging overtime? Are some costs getting double counted? Um, is stuff being misattributed? What's going on? The other cost discrepancy that was very large that we found was that they claimed that we owed basically $1.44 million for a contract for uh, the psychiatrists, but actually based on the billable hours that we have paid them for. And um, and we uh, we made an assumption with uh, Highland that the, the psychiatrist there was working 30 hours a week. In fact, they're only working 20. So we, we actually were conservative and said we would pay them more. But even based on that, there's almost a $600,000 gap in which they're saying we owe versus what we believe we actually owe uh, on our costs on psychiatrists. Um, the other thing that we noticed was that there's a lot of missing information around revenue. In the sheet that was presented to us by uh, the administration, AR just included every payment to us. There was no breakdown in terms of psychiatric services. Uh, there was no breakdown in terms of whether we got any Medi-Cal reimbursements. It was all just a big lump sum. And um, what we found out was that based on the reimbursable rate from Medicare, which we backed out for the year of that data, there was sort of an excess of about 50 dollars per daily visit um, that sh should not have come from Medicare based on our regular revenue. And we think that's probably psychiatric billing um, and like reimbursements. And if you add up all of the visits that they in that time, that really is close to $275,000. And that was a six month thing. So you can imagine for over the course of a year, that's about $550,000 probably coming from psychiatric services billings. Um, and, and that's interesting because Dr. Wise told us that she didn't think our psychiatrists were breaking even in terms of the return on investment, what we pay them, what, what they bill. But in fact, our billing for them is about $540,000 a year based on our actual costs um, at Fairmont anyway. And that is ex that is basically in excess. So you see that, that we would not be in the red. 550 billing, 540 costs. So um, the other thing that is different um, from this spreadsheet that we got was that um, the Medicare rate has gone up significantly, reimbursement rate. So if you took the daily visits that um, were reported for the six-month snapshot that they provided to us and just actually said what would be the revenue based on the new um, rate, there's quite a bit of revenue there, close to $300,000. And finally, um, there's a couple of revenue sources that are missing from here. One is that we... Um, we can now charge pro fees on the 2018 numbers. We could not. If you charge pro fees uh, now, um, based on the daily visits that this snapshot represented, so using Dr. Wise's and the administration's numbers, we would have a huge um, increase in revenue of about $525,000 between the two sites. Oops, sorry, I'm going to go back. So, um, and finally, if we were able to get our Medi-Cal copay from this, the county, which we're not sure whether we've gotten or not. First we heard yes, then we heard no, then we heard yes. Even if the county didn't want to pay the Medi-Cal copay to us, we can bill the state. We found that out. We can we can bill them directly for the 20% that they owe for our patients um, because it's a Medi Medi program, and that would be close to $856,000 in revenue. That is not represented in the in the kinds of revenue numbers that were presented to us and to you. We so so I'm going to show you the numbers here. I'm just going to go through them. As you can see, I don't know if you, how much you guys can see this. Can you see it, or do I need to go to a larger? I'm going to go to a larger one. All right. So if you take a look here, this was the um, this was the how do I get rid of this? How do I get rid of this? This was the revenue sheet that uh, we got. I mean, the 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 expense sheet that we got from the administration, and you can see here that um, they had 1.252 plus five for employee costs. This was the psychiatry costs. This is the, the revised total. This was the overhead, oopsie, sorry, the overhead number that uh, we were given, which we were told was gonna be 
of our total direct costs. If you look here at this spreadsheet, you can see that actually the multiplier being used there is not 0.43, it was actually 0.32 it looks like there. And so these numbers, the overhead are actually underquoted in the costs that the administration told us we owed. We wanted to be honest, transparent and fair, so we fixed that in our spreadsheet. Um, okay, here is our spreadsheet with the costs. Um, this was our total cost. We did not break out the benefits, but we did use the data from FC. Based on our calculation of fully staffed at the time of the 2018 uh, snapshot, fully paid, everyone working their full hours with benefits, this was our total. This, was the con this is the cost. Of Sorry, you have one, one more minute. This is the cost of the psychiatrist. This is the total. And here's the actual, as you can see over here, the um, actual uh, overhead that we should have been paying. This is their analysis of revenue. And here is our analysis of revenue showing uh, the actual AR, the Medi-Cal copay, psych fees, and expected pro fees. And it's quite a bit higher. If you take a look, um, also, there, there's, there's something here that we wanted to talk about. I'll skip it for now. Um, the total annualized uh, losses that Dr. Wise thought we had was $4 million, but when you add in ours, it's close to $550,000. We know from the audit independent last year that the county did that uh, psychiatric services were um, overstated in costs and understated in revenue. That's what we found when we did our analysis. What we would like from you guys is to ask the finance department to give us the full data. We want to know what's going on with our, our, our budget. We want to know if we're really in the red or not. Um, we're asking you to help us get that, that data for the past five years. We also have been going to get the HPAC grant um, that we've always received as revenue, and we don't know why not because we're be, actually we do serve the target population, and we are being asked to serve more of it, which we want to do, yet they want to take that money away from us, which would be not great for us. Um, we'd also like to, to get to the bottom of the... Um, I'm sorry, your, your time is... Your time is up. Okay, that's it. Uh, that's I just want to make sure, uh, Rana, is this a, a document that has been made available to the trustees? It will be uh, shortly. Great. That's so, it. And, and let's make it, uh, if, if you could send it to all the trustees, um, not not just the committee members, appreciate that. Absolutely. It'll be available for the public as well. Thank you, Ms. Batter. Appreciate your. It's very hard to do a public pre uh, presentation in a limited time frame. I've done it many. I know. Times. Went by so fast. Thank yeah, you. It's very hard. I appreciate you uh, being patient with that, and thank you for thank your. You. Okay, now I'm going to move. We're still on item C, so I'll move to our CFO uh, to do a report, and we'll go back to revenue cycle later if that's okay with you, Kim. I want to keep uh, the we actually have Terry on now. She's on and joined us, so we can proceed if you'd like. Yeah, I, I think uh, to be fair to our presenters, um, I think we should finish up item C. Okay. So that they don't have to stick through another conversation. Sure. If that's, is that okay? Can our staff wait? Okay. So Kim, are you ready to go on item C? Um, on uh, on the, the operating capital budget item. Oh, um, so I'm trying to make sure the public comment is tied to the item. Okay. I see. I wasn't following that part of it. Yeah, I wasn't being very clear. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to be fair to our presenters. 
because they commented on this item. I want to. I don't want to have to save for another half hour to get to this item. All right. Okay. So I'm going to share my screen here, and I will do the budget update, and then and then Terry will come back to you. Perfect. Thank you. So this is uh, the um, approved interim budget. If you all recall, um, we were at an EBITDA of 1.2 million, a net income loss of 53.8 million. Um, so we basically were generating enough cash flow to pay for our operation, but not enough cash flow to pay for any of our capital commitments, any debt obligation, or anything outside of just keeping our doors open. Um, we uh, set out to try to continue to prove this. I'm giving you an update today. This is not the final budget presentation. It's just an update. We're just uh, letting you know what we have done since you approved the interim budget. So this next slide lays out the, the items that have changed. Um, we uh, have uh, determined that we can do a legacy system buyout. I think I mentioned it in uh, in the variance slide for June, uh, and that will end up saving us 1.8 million in next fiscal year. Um, we do believe that we will get an additional 5 million from the CARES Act. This is for uh, based on cases. Uh, we didn't qualify for this money the first time around, but we do the second time and we're, we're very confident. So we've gone ahead and built that into the improvements. We have made an adjustment to our benefits um, that resulted in a $9 million pickup. Um, benefits has been uh, a little bit of a roller coaster ride because with COVID, um, everyone was shelter in place, we're not receiving services. And um, when you look at the winter months, they're typically higher than summer months. And so what we've done is we've done, done some fine tuning to achieve the 9 million. Um, we've built in visitant labor optimization. The plan is to have visitant on site and to help us with uh, achieving our, our labor standards. We also received a 10% um, increase in our COVID for COVID uh, for our skilled nursing, and we believe that will be 2.250 million between now and December. Um, we've built in additional savings from implementing no COLA. Again, you know, we're having to, we've done that for our exempt staff and now we're working with our union partners. Uh, and at this point, we're comfortable with building in an additional 2.3 million. Um, we did a true up on the HPAC contract uh, for FY21, which resulted in a pickup of just about 2.5 million. Uh, overall on HPAC, um, when we did the analysis for the Budget Oversight Committee, we were um, we reported losses and growing losses, and the, the new contract uh, was a rate increase for us there. Uh, so that would bring us to an EBITDA of $23.4 million. Um, the, that is an EBITDA margin of 2.3%. Uh, we had set out to achieve the FY19 calendar performance, which is just about a 3.2, about a 30 to $32 million EBITDA. So we're still not quite there yet, but we're getting closer. And we wanted to call out that we do think that um, 
CARES Act is going to go back through and relook at our cost reports or come up with another way for safety nets to have received the funding because the, the as DeVecchio pointed out earlier, it was really strange if you look at who got it and who did it in the safety net world. And so I think everybody realizes there were issues. And so we, we don't know that we'll get it. We have no idea what they're gonna look at to determine who gets it. But we think that, it, that we should get more money. And so we think it could be in the 15 million magnitude. So we wanted to call it out for you. Oops, sorry, I'm not in the uh, presentation mode. So then that would get us to an EBITDA of 24.7 million and a 30.3 million net income loss. Um, uh, we've put the variances to our target, calendar year 2019, same format as we did with approving the interim budget. Uh, we will for final budget compare it to the actual FY 2020 full year and not use calendar, but we didn't want to change that in the middle of the process. Uh, not to mention we still have audit entries. So. Um, in looking at this, you can see that we've increased our revenue uh, there by 40.9 and our expenses um, uh, by 17.8, proving net income by 17.8 and uh, EBITDA um, uh, is actually a 24.6. It looks like this slide didn't, I think your slides probably have that correction in it in the, in the deck. So then, oops, gotta stop doing that. Then we have the uh, cash flow projection. So we're carrying forward the 24,680, the 2.3% increase. And the rest of this, it has not really changed. Okay, so there's a supplemental timing difference of about 33.4 million. Um, there is the capital outlay of 63251 uh, 43.4 are the new essential requests for 21. Uh, nothing's really changed there since I reported to you last. We do get some offset and that hasn't changed either. That's the 2.7 rounded. Then I've put the county transactions next. So we have to make our pension obligation uh, of 7.2 million for the bond retirement. There is the uh, capital cost transfer. That's from our cost reports. We give that the money associated with the county owned buildings gets paid back to the county. And then we are supposed to be able to access it to pay for maintenance and repair items at the county facilities. So far, we have not gotten that money back, but I'm assuming we will at 13.4 million. Then there's the capital reserve fund. That is where to help pay for Epic. So uh, we've, uh, it's, it's kind of an in and out, but we will have made three payments of 7 million to the reserve fund with the county. And then they're supposed to pay us back the 7 million. Um, so far they have not so at this point they owe us 14 million so if i take that um, the sum of those 21 items is the 65005 it's a negative number we would add 65 million to our line of credit the line of credit at june 30 was uh this is uh 
pretty close to what it is it's within a million 85 589 you add the 65 million you get to the 150 595 that pretty much agrees to what i just presented in the july financial statements so what i've done differently is i've now put the recoupments after that so it's really clear uh, what it does to the line of credit so then you add the um, the prior year recoupments to our line of credit, we would end up with adding another 137, which would get us at 288.047. So the materiality of these numbers have not changed much at all, a few million here or there, but this is our projection and, and this is uh, what uh, we, uh, we would see based on our current budget at 2.3% EBITDA margin or 24 million 680. We are still working to improve that, which is the next slide. This is kind of the summary of um, how we're tracking all of this. There's a lot of opportunities to save money here, uh, some of which were in the original budget. Uh, new opportunities were identified. We put some in the um, interim budget, and then now we're working towards a final budget. Um, some of the big ones left that we're still looking for targets for are the length of stay, um, the, some more on the labor side, we're doing a lot of um, work with the unions now. Um, measure A can actually be a negative, right now we've got it at 117.7, we talked about the fact that it had improved the last two months and that we will actually get to 117.7, so that's, a, that's good news. Um, I don't know if anybody has any questions on any of the things on here. Hey, Kim, this is Joe. Could you go back one slide? Sure. Oops, sorry. There you go. Thank you. Um, and I know you said it. Um, okay. Uh, I'm sorry, the 30 million uh, in the recruitments, that 137, we actually think this year it's going to be that 30 million of it is postponed to 22, right? Or no, you, oh, you no, this is, you already took that, that physician SBA out. I, I apologize. Right. Yeah, yeah. This 137 is truly what we expect to hit this year. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. That is correct. <clears throat> yeah, I have. Uh... I mean, I really appreciate everything you went through to, to come to these potential numbers, but but I I'm feeling even at this uh, at these numbers, it is so tight, okay, that it's really of, of concern. And I I wish there was a way we could uh, benchmark ourselves against other hospital systems to see where we fall in relationship to them. I looked at some information on nonprofit hospitals, you know, and uh, they do it based on operating margin rather than EBITDA. But um, uh, they're the lower rated hospitals, the B rated hospitals, uh, their, their range was uh, at the lowest performers were at, you know, one, a negative 0.7%. Uh, and I think we're at 2.49% or almost 2.5%. Uh, and I'm, I'm just really concerned that the numbers are so tight that just 
anything that could happen on this COVID uh, or or revenues in general is just going to you know going to put us in a really tough place. And the other thing that's implied here is we're going to have to ask the the county to make this all work for uh, uh, almost 170 million dollar increase on our in our net negative balance. Uh, so I, I just mentioned those because I, 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 I'm concerned that, you know, I'm, I'm feeling that we should be more at an operating margin of maybe a, a negative 1%, which would, uh, you know, based on the benchmarks I've been looking at, which means we really are about six, 15, $16 million short of where lower rated nonprofit hospitals would so I'm, I'm not saying that we can necessarily get there, but I, you know, we are, we are, <laughs> this is an unusually tight margin and it doesn't allow for really much in the way of mistakes. Anyway. It's interesting too, if you go back over years um, for safety net um, hospitals, um, it's uh, whether we use EBITDA, I use EBITDA because EBITDA flows into cash, which helps us with the NNB. Yeah, uh, we could always target both as well. Yeah, I think it might be worth doing that just because a lot of the benchmarks are more around the operating margin. But you know, so our document, uh, our our, our uh, income statement generally shows both. I, I think yeah. uh, Kim makes a point that EBITDA is is a better target for cash and actually. Um, you're right. Uh, EBITDA, I think, have been uh, kind of in in use for about a little more than a decade. Uh, mm -hmm. But but people tend to use both, and then some of the uh, more longer standing sort of uh, 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 benchmarks do. Uh, uh, I think tend towards operating margin. Uh, your your comment about uh, nonprofit hospitals obviously uh, is a is a useful context, and then just disclaimers around kind of the distinctions. Not nonprofits, uh, uh, whether they are low performing or or higher performing uh, tend to have a much different payer mix. Uh, um, not, not that there are not-for-profit hospitals that don't see Medi-Cal uh, uh, patients. In fact, that, that is true. Uh, the percentage of the Medi-Cal patients, which doesn't generally put them in a disproportionate share hospital category that then makes you eligible for supplemental funding, um, um, it tends to be less. And so they are, there's even more generally, they they tend to have less commercial and more Medicare. Medicare still being a better reimbursement source than Medi-Cal uh, or Medicaid and Medi-Cal certainly in California where it's uh, uh, quite low. And then, as you know, even for us and in, in benchmarking against public hospitals, uh, uh, I think what you see and what we've seen historically when we looked is that they are feasts and famine years. There are years where uh, the um, operating margin or EBITDA, whichever metric you use, is uh, uh, really low, and then there's uh, some years where it will actually then turn positive, and you will have some uh, favorable um, uh, years, generally in the single-digit uh, percentages. Uh, but that all kind of is based off of what's happening with uh, supplemental uh, payment programs. Uh, for us, as you know, there's a kind of a long-standing uh, structural question with respect to the uh, the source of the non-federal share for many of our supplemental fundings that uh, then also further kind of uh, compromise the I think the integrity of uh, our overall financial structure so so I think you're right uh, that uh, just it's kind of 
divorcing all of that and kind of standing back and saying as a healthy sort of balance sheet or income statement performance for an organization from a budgetary perspective you want to be somewhere that gives you a little bit more comfort for your ability to weather things because this budget uh, just to remind everybody is is a forecast right it, there's nothing that's absolute about this and as Kim mentioned uh, a big portion of our revenue is based off of um, uh, contract negotiations that we'll have to do both with our uh, public Medi-Cal uh, uh, peers as well as commercial payers. And those negotiations are underway, or, um, and we don't know what they'll turn out to be. Some of that we do know the state budget is going to impact our Medi-Cal payers. So, so it is, there is a lot of risk uh, still in the budget. And I think uh, one of the slides or her future slide is going to uh, kind of underscore some of that. So I think you're right to point that out, and you're right to suggest that this is something that we're trying to calibrate and be um, not overly conservative, but certainly not aggressive at all, but recognizing that uh, we're going to continue to try to find dollars. As we mentioned, this $15 million or more that we were hoping to get out of this one funding source, which is still one time, just like the 28 for behavioral health last year was one time for John George. Uh, uh, we have a really fundamental issue here that each year we're trying to find at least $30 million just to keep up with the rate of inflation uh, to support the cost structure for the organization. And and that is increasingly difficult to do. Right. And then, you know, I, I totally agree with you. Is, is there a way that we could benchmark ourselves against uh, safety net hospitals? Is there I think uh, there have been some experiences before. It, it, it takes a bit of work because of kind of the uh, machinations. Uh, it's not just the uh, payer mix, but also the service mix because we have a significant portion of our uh, footprint is post-acute, which is not uh, common for uh, safety nets. Uh, but we've, we've done some of that and calibrated it. We could go back and pull that out and see if we can kind of update it. But um, I think we've even done it like within the last, I feel like we did it while Nancy was here. So less than two years, about a year plus, uh, uh, but we may be able to find some of that and we can work on doing that for you. Yeah. I don't know if we can, uh, we'll try to do it between now and next month. That may be a little tight, but we can we can uh, 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 make a note to follow up on that and see how quickly we can get that for you. Yeah, of course, of course the other thing is uh, at the net negative balance of 288 million, you know, which is forecast, we, we also have very little capacity to pay that back, right? Uh, I think the Phrase is slightly different. <laughs> uh, 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 little uh, more no to little uh, uh, ability to, to pay that back. I think we're being really more honest with. Yeah, yeah. I, you you have to remember. I mean, the the supplemental funding we get is usually a lot of it is you know to to get us our costs reimbursed. Mm -hmm. So if we don't have the cost, uh, you know, we don't get the that money. So. Uh, it's uh, it's a it's a little and it's not the same for every one of our programs. So you really have to look at it when you make a change uh, to to see what the true impact will be. Because if you cut your costs in an area where your costs reimbursed, then you cut your revenue, right? Right. And you, and most programs will not, you know, sup supplement you to make profit to pay back debt. So it's a, not a good. It's a, not a simple situation, and it's not a it's for a safety net facility to be expected to generate a margin to pay this. Is, it just doesn't, it doesn't make well, any yeah, but it, even, uh, Kim, even in what I was proposing or looking at as a benchmark would be a, a negative, uh, you know, a negative operating margin of 1%, mm -hmm. yeah. which is, you know, almost. You know, 
11 we million. Could add the, we could add that to this slide very easily. Um, to me, because EBITDA pretty much turns into cash, it flows to the projection. So that's why I... No, it's it's actually already on there. I appreciate that. I just... If you look, Kim, it's already it's already there. It's right above EBITDA. Yeah. The operating margin is right yeah. it's right it's right there. Yeah. Right there. Operating income loss right there. Yeah, right there. yeah but then even at the very bottom where we turn into percentages. Yeah. You see? Oh it is. It is showing. Yeah, we show it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just when I when I went to try to look at benchmarks of what others were doing, most of them were based on operating margin. So I just you know, on a piece of paper converted it to an operating margin. And then I looked at the worst performing, the, the B-rated, B-rated bond hospitals, which are not, you know, are marginal hospitals. And they said that they're, uh, that they had a, a negative uh, margin as low as a negative 0.7%. Yeah. So, and you can see that year over year, we've been closer to, even in the favorable EBITDA years, it's been negative. Uh, uh, two to four uh, yeah. percent operating margin. Yeah, but I but I think we we have this this ongoing spiral around uh, you know needing access to to more credit line just to just to survive. Anyway, I just bring it up as a food for thought. Yeah, no, that's a good idea. It's a great idea. Um, so then here's my uh, risk slide. Um, you know, in order to achieve the FY21 budget, even as presented now, not at target, we've already built in reductions in OT and improvements in labor, labor targets. And we need, to, we need to get this done. Our, our operators need to be able to achieve it. Um, you know, we've got COLA savings built in quite a bit now. But we're still in negotiations with, uh, you know, several different uh, union groups for different contracts. And DeVecchio mentioned the fact that uh, we are only just now starting the negotiation for um, payer rate increases. So they're, they're, they're not a done deal. They're yet to be negotiated. And um, we really need to improve our throughput across AHS. So we, we talked a little bit about the SNF discharges are down. We talked about length of stay. Uh, we don't have our target built in yet, but um, improving the, the throughput throughout our whole system is, is key. And that takes a lot of work. <laughs> um, and then the impact of the pandemic. Um, you know, at this point, nothing is built into our budget. Unless, of, you know, of course, we think we're going to receive that CARES funding, that additional $5 million was in there. Um, but there is a change in service mix, which does impact how much we get paid. And, um, you know, the, I bring out again, the quarantine period requirement with SNF is definitely having an issue on, on throughput. So um, next steps, um, you know, we're going to keep working that list. Um, and we'll update for any of those high-risk variables that, you know, we know of. And we plan to bring back a final budget for you to approve in October. And WIPLI is well underway, and they're focusing on financial reporting and uh, breaking out all our different um, facilities and some of the high-level programs, like skilled nursing. 
um, so then we can start um, having a transparent way to look at AHS and figure out a way to stabilize. Information's power. Information's power, I agree. So uh, just to clarify, uh, so we'll have a budget to look at as a committee and then it'll go to the full board uh, all in October, right? That is the plan. I also want to clarify. Uh, quick question. Oh, yeah, go ahead, please. Uh, so we will, you will do this presentation to the full board in, uh, in September, though. So we keep everyone looped in, correct? I'd be happy to. I haven't. We haven't. I don't know if the agenda's gone out yet. The agenda I, hasn't I think... been created yet. We'll we do agenda review with the exec committee, uh, uh, and uh, if. Uh, we it's it's always included, uh, but if if you want, uh, uh, and we can ask. Uh, obviously, our president is here. If you want to make it an agenda item, we can actually do the presentation for everyone. I I, I really just think so. For, so the other members feel looped in as they should be. It's always hard to read a written report and feel like you got the same content as having a, a dialogue about it. So I would recommend we we have a dialogue about this on at our September meeting. If if other people agree, that'd be great. It makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the other point I wanted to make uh, before we move on is that, you know, there there's a lot of work go going on at the senior, well, actually throughout the organization to figure out how to get to a uh, reasonably healthy budget. And I say that with a little tongue in cheek because I'm not sure how, how close we're going to get to that. But a lot of work going on and so the process is that you know trustees aren't going to be involved directly in deciding where cuts and um well we obviously don't have control over revenue but we're not going to be in, you know we're not going to be looking at individual programs um we'll be looking at a budget and it's total and so uh for those uh, stakeholders who are uh, concerned and interested in the process, it really, um, I think it would be the best thing, best thing to do would be to engage with senior staff on um, uh, your concerns and your, uh, your, uh, your voice on your, for your program. Uh, particularly if you think that uh, there isn't a complete representation on the financial side for what you're doing. So with that, uh, any other questions or comments from trustees on this issue? Item C, not hearing any. I'm gonna take us back to item B2 or three, the revenue. All right. So Terry, can you share your screen? Sure. Okay, hopefully everybody can see my screen. Um, thank you. And so, hey, uh, Terry, I did introduce you before you were on. I was thinking while you were joining, but I don't know if you want to add anything. Um, uh, I know that the Finance Committee has asked to have you come and, and present. They, they love to hear from staff, um, but I don't know if you want to say anything about your background or anything. I, I did do a really brief um, highlight no, I, I mean, that's that's fine. Thank you. I, I started here at AHS on June 1st, so I have 90 days now. 
I'm excited to be here and I'm actually excited to show you some of our progress on the slides coming up. So thank you. Good to have you with us. Thank you. So since this is my, this is, as an introduction, this is my first time presenting here to this group, but it's also the last time presenting our stabilization dashboards in the current format. The reason for that is, is we've been on Sapphire for a year now and Epic keeps data for new installs for the first 52 weeks, which um, after that results in no cross customer comparisons going forward. However, um, we will continue to provide the updates on the metrics that you are used to seeing. And there's really other ways in the system that we can grab information and compare us to other organizations like us. So next month, or when we present again, it'll look a little different, but the same metrics will be presented. So as we go through the slide, you are gonna see some reds, um, especially in the categories of charge and payment variances. COVID has reduced our volumes and our average daily revenue, and many of our metrics are compared to historical data at go live. So it kind of skews our results. And the adjusted metrics have been restated to reflect the impact of COVID to our charge volume. So this chart here, um, this is our um, Epic accounts receivable for hospital billing. This is us right here. And this here is the bottom performer. So actually we're doing, we're doing much better. So no longer are we just comparing ourselves and trying to reach the bottom performer level. We're reaching out and stretching to get to, so we're in between the medium and the top performer with our hospital billing. That's great. Here's, right. another, here's another chart broke down by category. Um, it shows our CFB days, open denial days. Um, so our open denial days are right here. There's been, a, we're very proud of this little decrease here, but steady decrease. Um, so it shows where we were um, like mid-June right here and, and the steady decrease down to 6.3. And actually open denials as of today is 5.9. So I just want to mention that because we're pretty excited about that. That's great work. Thank you. So here's our dashboard. Here's the reds we talked about. And at the end of the slides, there's going to be a charge comparison um, to other organizations. So our Epic AR days, 68.6, this is at 828. It's a little bit lower now. And this shows that where we compare to the bottom, medium, top performer. So we're right in there. We're reaching to the top performer. Um, our CFB days are 7.8, and I think this morning they're even lower than that. Um, so we're really happy with our CFB days. We're still not quite at the bottom performer, but we are getting there and everybody just really wants to get there. So we're all on the same page and very motivated. And, you know, it's, it's a, just a nice downward trend that we're pretty proud of. Our coding days, coding, you know, they're superstars. They are coding days have always been solid and, you know, above the top performer. Um, our claim edit days, um, we're, we're doing well here too at 1.5. It's, it's going down, working very hard on our claim edits um, to ensure clean claims to the payer. And our open denial days, this was 6.3. Today we're 5.9. And again, it, it's just a nice downward trend. So. We want to keep at that. 
here's our candidate for billing. Um, this is how we look. Um, you know, we need to get here and then get down in between at least to the medium performer. And I have no doubt we can do it with the team we have in place. And on the right-hand side, it shows all the owning areas for CFB. So these are all the departments twice a week that get on the phone. We go through every single number and see what everybody can reduce or commit to reducing for the week. So everybody from all these departments are on a call Monday and Friday. Here's our HB claim edits, also on a downward trend. A lot of work being done here with our clearinghouse edits to ensure clean claims. Here's our open denials. Um, we're getting there. So it's, it's in the right direction. There's a, a lot of work going on here. Um, we have a denial call every Thursday. And during that week, we meet constantly um, to talk about denials. Here's PB. Um, PB has actually been in the green for several weeks now, and they look good. Um, their AR days are 47.6, so it's um, right, right in there. Um, Pre-AR days. Pre-AR days is similar to um, a candidate for billing. So it's a little higher, but we are reviewing 100% of our telehealth before it's billed out. So we always have a, a big balance there, um, which contributes. And claim edit dates are going down. Um, open denials, we know what the issues are here. They're a little higher from last week. Um, not quite where we want them to be, but we know exactly what's going on and where our um, problem points are and their action plans around all of that. So we expect to see that come down. PB pre-AR, um, as we compare to the bottom performer, we need to get we don't want to compare to the bottom. We want to compare to the top performer. So that's our goal. PB claim edits, there's a lot of work going on here um, with our clearinghouse as well, just like on HB. PB denials as compared to the bottom. Again, we're you know striving to get lower and we will. Before I go any further, are there any questions about what I showed so far? So here's some notes on um, just revenue cycle management in general. Um, we are reducing our metrics. They've significantly reduced and we're continuing on the downward trend. Um, we're in the right direction. We know we have more work to do, but if we stay focused with the team in place that we have today, there's no doubt that we can get there. The staff is very excited and motivated about our results. We've been celebrating all these little accomplishments along the way and then building on those successes. Um, initiatives, we have lots of work groups focusing on this, uh, many work groups for all, all of our metrics and great participation throughout the hospital and all of our departments because we all contribute. Um, we have daily focus on denials, CFB, and our AR days are starting to decrease as well and our cash flow is increasing. And another big initiative, Priority Press, is we're working to ensure, ensure compliance with the price transparency regulation. That's effective 1-1 of uh, 2021. So we have a great uh, task force in place. We know what we need to accomplish. And, um, you know, we're working with Kim and Mark, too. So they are aware of um, where we're at with that project. 
So the significant work um, on our denials, we focus on the root cause. You know, we have to determine the root cause and work on that to make those denials reduced. So we have our, workly, our weekly work group meeting, attendance from everybody in the organization, all our key stakeholders. Um, we have action items and owners. Those people have to come back once a week and report on their action items. Um, and we've had a big decrease. So if you look at from 710 to 94, We've, re we've reduced our open denials, 13 million. And as of 9-4, I already said that we were at um, six days. So we're excited about the direction we're going in. And, you know, we just really want to compare ourselves to the top performer, not the bottom, but we will get there. Here's a slide I mentioned. Um, this is um, our charges as compared um, it's basically the COVID impact comparison charges as the um, percent and compared to other California hospitals for hospital billing and professional billing. So this is us here charges. And this is California average and this is PB charges and California average. Well, that was my last slide. I don't know if you had any questions about anything presented. Any questions? Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, it's really exciting to see the improvement. It's really exciting to have uh, you here with us, Terry. Um, it's obviously moving completely in the right direction. Thank Thank you. So were we going to discuss the uh, the charity and the? Uh... Yeah, these are. Can my recollection is these are uh, discussions. They're not action items. Okay. Correct. I think that uh, the finance committee can recommend to the board to approve the um, 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 bad debt or the uh, collection. Um, huh, always forget the name of our policy. It's so hard when I'm sorry. Policy. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the charity care was on the agenda to be approved by the board last time, and it was pulled for discussion. And so uh, Terry's going to include her uh, update or her want to her need to update the policy that is already in the process to be approved. But we do need to have a policy in place, even though we need to make some changes to it. And then Terry is ready to go forward with her um, bad our debt uh, collection or debt management processes. There we go. Debt collection. Good night. Agency management policy. Yes. Sorry for that long. Could I ask, Joe? Okay. Actually, if I can ask a question before we get into the presentation. Um, first off, I already read what you put in the packet, and I would I would move approval. I thought that's what we were going to do tonight. Right. Um, I didn't realize it it wasn't an action item, and I just um, I'm I just want to do a time check in because uh, again I think this. I really support this, but I don't know that it requires a lot of conversation. I mean, typically these meetings are supposed to end by six. Um, that's right. obviously not going to happen. Uh, I, I really like the work. I'm not trying to shortchange the work. I just, um, it's, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't so, know how for, so are there comments from, I had the same reaction as, as uh, Trustee DeVree said. I, it seemed like, uh, <clears throat> It's something that was ready for action, but um, other trustees have questions? 
I'm ready to approve it myself. I thought it was read well. So we could put it, uh, I believe uh, Mr. Moy is going to tell us we need to put it on next uh, Finance Committee's agenda. Take action. Well, I thought it was that you would recommend to the board for approval. I don't know, Mike, you'll have to weigh in. I thought that's what we said. So. Or we could just uh, encourage our board president. Yeah. Yes. So, so yes, this can be put on the agenda for the uh, board, you know, for them to approve it. And in the course of either the finance committee report or during the course of the discussion of it at the full board, then, <clears throat> then I think it, you know, entirely appropriate to, you know, represent that, you know, this came before the finance committee and the finance committee, you know, was in favor of the board approving it. Without taking an action. Okay. Yeah. That, is, is that uh, okay with trustees? Yeah. And that's two policies, right? These are two separate policies. Correct. Yeah. One is one is already before the full board uh, got pulled, so it'll come back. At, uh, and this this new one, uh, the debt collection one, will uh, go before. Will be added to that now with your recommendation or uh, instructions here, and the uh, both policies will be up for action at the full board meeting now. Yeah, I just uh, just to echo <laughs> Trustee DeRee's point. I, I hope this doesn't add another hour to our regular board meeting, but that's you know that'll be what it is. Um, so uh, I think we're ready to move on. Thank you, um, Terry and Kim, for for that. Thank, thank you. Good work. Good uh, Item D: uh, True North Metrics Update. Hopefully, we can do this quickly. Okay. Yes, um, so uh, we're, we're sticking with the, the same True North finance metrics that we've had this year. At least that's what we're recommending. Um, just to remind everybody, and it's in the packet, um, we had EBITDA margin, and again, that we chose that because it reflects cash flow, and that goes against the NNB. Um, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, we, we have that graph. What we expect is that within three months or so of, re of reporting net revenue, that we will see the cash coming in. Uh, so that's a, it's a very important um, uh, uh, metric to follow. The second one was the AHS cash collections as a percent of expected net revenue. So basically, that is saying um, that we want to be, we want to collect 100% of the net revenue. Uh, I think I'm, I uh, <laughs> skipped through my notes here a little too fast, but uh, so anyway, EBITDA margin is representing cash flow against the NNB. And then the second one is the AHS cash collections as a percent of expected net revenue. That's where we want to see within about three months that we've actually got cash in the bank that reflected our net patient revenue. Uh, the next one is HS gross days and accounts receivable. Um, we wanna make sure our AR is not growing. We wanna make sure that we're working it uh, and we wanna benchmark it. So we wanna continue with that one. The expense per adjusted patient day, that takes into account our volume. So we're using adjusted patient day, which is kind of a blended uh, indicator of our volume and our total expenses. So we don't want our expenses to jump up as volume goes down. We want to try to keep it on budget. 
And then worked hours per adjusted patient day, again, that, that allows for flexing to make sure that we are managing um, the workforce with the volume. Um, so those are the metrics we had last year. Those are the ones we're recommending to bring forward again this next fiscal year. So we had a conversation earlier this evening about the operation margin. Is that um, something that would be easy to add? And do we want to? I, I would argue that we should add it, and I think it's easy to do, but it you know, would complement the, uh, you know, the statistic we already have. Yeah, it tells us something different. And that you know. yeah. It is easier to benchmark, that's for sure. So maybe the issue is we, we want to, I don't know, uh, Trustee Peterson, if you're thinking that we should set a target like uh, based on other safety nets or whether we stick with budget for that? Well, I think let, let's start with budget for now and then see if, you know, if there, you know, uh, I'd be interested if, if there is some, some, something we could benchmark it against, but at least to have that number in addition to the EBITDA. Yeah, I agree. I think we need, we should do a little more research on safety net hospitals. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe our association that we belong to, Safety Net Hospitals, could help us a little bit there. Delvecchio, could you kind of take the lead on that? Yeah, yeah I'll, be, I'll be happy to ask. I, I, as I said, we'll probably do it with some type of uh, caveat factor just because there's such differences in yeah. our service mix. Uh, but but uh, it's a good place to start, and I think we have some historical piece we can follow up on. Now, the thing will be for the benchmark or for the dashboard, um, I, I, uh, it may be something where we have it pending for a while until we can uh, finalize it, but we want to make sure we're headed towards finalizing right the dashboard, yeah. but thank you. Okay. Yeah. And, and just to remind everybody, the, the only difference is interest depreciation and amortization between. Right, it's just we back it out. So it's actually the same thing. It's easy to, it's easy to show it as our, our historical and kind of keep tracking it each month because it's already on the income statement. It's yeah. just if you want to set a different, uh, it, it would not be, I mean, the target would be actually just taking what's a targeted EBITDA and then adjusting it for what it is in the budget too. So uh, yeah. we do that. But then what you want to look at with other safety nets would be a different thing entirely, but we could, we could still do that. And we can do that. Yeah. Great. Okay. Uh, can we move on? Go to item E. With that change, we're going to make that right. recommendation. Yes. I think uh, it's a go ahead with the, uh, with the one change. Okay. Okay. Item E. Um, Trustee DeVise, do you have uh, any opinion about these two items? I'm sorry. What are we on? <laughs> I don't have my agenda in front of me. I was I was fishing for a motion on the two. Oh yeah, I moved to approve. Sorry. <laughs> Great. Um, all those in favor? Aye. Aye. The item passes. Uh, and just one item in terms of tracking. I'm not sure if I asked for this in this committee or in full board, but I did ask staff to look at. Uh, law enforcement perception of law enforcement on our Highland camp on our campuses actually and staff has put together a report for the full board um, so uh, which is probably a better place for that conversation but I just wanted to update everyone on that um, I really appreciate that yeah seems more uh, appropriate to be there also I'm sorry seems more appropriate to be to the full board rather than the planning yeah yeah I, I agree 
Um, any other items around tracking, planning? We have a lot of work. Not <laughs> hearing any. I'm going to um, close the meeting if that's agreeable. Can I, Trustee Shequin, can I just uh, ask that, that we all pause and uh, uh, wish Kim a happy one year anniversary that she'll achieve ah, in, in six happy days. anniversary, Kim. That's fantastic. Six six days she will have survived a whole year here, which is awesome. smiling too. That's <laughs> a, an excellent sign. It went by fast. I got to say that. It sure did. It feels like just yesterday. Sure it does. Wow. I think we need to compliment Lewis too, because I think this is like our shortest meeting. We're only four. <laughs> yeah, why is Sadly, you're not done yet. You got a closed session item. Oh, say, we have a closed session item, so it's, it's we, not over yet. No, we don't. Yeah, you do. Yes, we do. Oh, God. It ain't over. So you're not, you're not adjourning the meeting. You're adjourning the meeting to closed session. I'm adjourning the meeting to closed session. <laughs> Committee is going to meet in closed session at our, our conference with legal counsel regarding a potential litigation matter. So I'll go ahead and open up the breakout room here and we'll get this started.